Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space, which is the weekly roundup of the videos from the channel, including TFOS 912 to 925. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 912, Masters of War, written by Ogiwan. It was supposed to be a study period, but final exams were last span. With another span to go until the end of the instruction cycle, the cadets, to use the Terran term, were scattered about the room, talking and joking in small groups. The pressures to study and succeed were like nothing these young Seraki had ever encountered, so they gladly took advantage of a momentary slack to relax. Even the instructor, a scarred veteran of countless campaigns was drowsing on the lectern and enjoying a patch of sunlight. One of the cadets, known to be somewhat reckless, stood up. Or Elder Suhu, may I ask a question? The grizzled instructor opened an eye and grumbled, Sreek! War Elder Suhu, you have fought in many cycles and have earned countless war honors. We all wished we could be like you, but we all know the terrors of combat. How do you overcome your fears? So hissed in approval of the question and turned his head to look at the cadet with both eyes. You overcome your fears in two ways, sir. First is by facing them and remembering your duty. The second is to speak about them and to listen to others, to expel the fear so that it doesn't gnaw away at your insides. The cadet bobbed his head in acknowledgement. Or Elder Suhu, would you permit me another question? Suhu nodded in response. What was your most fearful experience? Suhu's tail twitched, remembering. He rubbed a piece of yellow metal on one of his claws. What the humans would call a ring. Its face bore a simple insignia, a torch with three stars above it and a kite shield. Receiving final feedback on my capstone paper. My thesis in human terms. One or two of the chanting groups of cadets quieted at this response. The inquisitive cadets' eyes' membranes dictated in confusion. Receiving a grade was your most frightening experience, Waralder. So who hissed in anger. Not the receiving, Egling, but the realization of what it meant. He quieted in thought. Cadet, what is it the purpose of this institution? The cadet proudly responded, to provide the future war leaders with the necessary skills and knowledge to lead their war groups. Just so. Now, cadet, once you've moved beyond having a single war group under your command, do you know everything? When you have hundreds or even thousands of war groups under your banner, do you have the necessary knowledge and skills to lead them? Several other groups of cadets had fallen silent by now, caught up by the promise of Suhu's history. I have not thought about that, war leader. Where does one go to learn about warfare aside from a battlefield? The humans have thought of that. When it comes to war, it seems the humans have thought of almost everything. This very school was started as a result of what we saw from their fighting in the Coltrum War five cycles ago. Once this school starts graduating cadets, we'll start another school to teach higher-level war leaders the skills and knowledge they need. 
After that school produces graduates, we'll start up a third for still higher war leaders. One of the cadets hissed in dismay. More school? Just how much school do we need to be a war leader? We just need to know how to fight. Suhu hissed. Warfare is more than knowing how to handle your weapon. Foolish acting. It is as much an art as a science. Then the humans have mastered both. Hopefully you will realize this after you deliver me a paper on the Terran General Staff from the territory of Prussia. By the start of the next instruction cycle, he cast a punctuating glare at the cadet and snapped, Do not speak out of turn, especially not with ignorant and lazy questions. The room was silent at this point, anticipating the important outcome of Suhu's anger. After a moment spent trying to calm down and return his neck rule back to place, he continued. Yes, continual education and development of war leaders is one of the many things the humans do that we seek to emulate. Their results are undeniable. For the last 10,000 cycles, galactic politics have been determined by the sides taken by great military powers. Of the four, one must have two on their side and bribe the third to stay neutral. No race has ever withstood three of them at once, especially not any race new to the galactic scene. All so it was. And then the humans not only withstood the Kilra, Ulro, and Maclari at the same time, but they also annihilated the forces sent against them. From what I saw, even if the Slark had joined alongside three other military powers, the humans still would have won handily. Quite a few tales twitched at the fear of this blunt admission of the mighty humans. The still standing inquisitive cadet asked, But how, war leader? Are the humans so strong? I don't recall them being particularly physically intimidating. Instructor Jackson is smaller than me and weaker than me. So who answered, Humans are tougher than you think. While we can regenerate lost limbs, humans can heal from practically anything that doesn't kill them outright. But their physical characteristics aren't their secret. It's their mental and cultural characteristics. Remember that humans are adaptable and competitive. Their competitive nature gives them a long history of conflict to draw on and their adaptability means that they can go anywhere, do anything, and learn quickly, and change behavior rapidly as a result. A human military unit will be unpredictable, capitalize on your weakness, and always take an inordinate amount of time and effort to destroy. Or other, you speak of the humans like they are some kind of military monster in the night. Humans aren't monsters in the night. They're worse. They're real. If you go up against the Kilra, you know they're going to try and attack from ambush. Humans don't have a specific way of fighting. Their changing talents have evolved with them. Human recorded history goes back about 6,000 of their cycles. Of those, only 200 cycles were entirely free of conflict. For the rest, someone, somewhere, was fighting. An uncomfortable stir ran through the credence. Now, while almost all other races have even longer recorded history, none have had so much conflict. 
What is worse, the humans have studied their past wars, and they have learned from them. Not only that, but they have people whose sole purpose is to try and learn more lessons from the past. Terran war leaders have studied these lessons, and they provide a foundation that all sorts of concepts of warfighting can rest on. Cadet summarized the Battle of Halon's Reach in the Coltrum War. Moralda, the Battle of Halon's Reach was an engagement between the Balro Warhost of the Almog and the Terran Third Expeditionary Corps of General Jackson. It occurred on a planet of Halon's Reach and was an overwhelming Terran victory. Zahu nodded in acknowledgement. Quite so. I was attached to Jackson's headquarters as an observer, and I have to admit that I was also watching for personal reasons, he said, gesturing at the small and lighter colored arm. I lost my arm to the Alamog and wanted to see a bit of misfortune come his way. I couldn't see how the humans could win, since they were both physically smaller and outnumbered by the Bulro. But I was hoping nonetheless. An expression flickered across his face then, and his voice changed with a grim awe. The initial Balro charge was stopped so thoroughly that it was as if it hit a wall, and then mobile units maneuvered to strike at its flanks of the Balro warhost. An orbital drop in near the rear sealed the Balro's face. Nine in ten of the Balro took to the field that day were lost. Nine in ten. After the battle was over, I congratulated Jackson on his victory, and he seemed disappointed. I asked him what was the matter, and his response was, We didn't get all of them. I told him that it was impossible to totally destroy an enemy forces of any substantial size. He then told me of multiple instances in human history where such a thing happened. He explained what his logic in choosing his tactics were based on, and ended with, I was just looking for my own canet. So who stared intently into the eyes of the cadets? The humans study their war leaders. They learn about them, what they did and why they did it, and take their lessons from their victories and defeats. They write about them and argue endlessly about them. Names like Alexander, Napoleon, Mainstein, Whitehaven, Mahan, Cloudswitz, Hart, Adolphus, Terrine, and countless others are thrown about to support this argument or that. Early on, given how frequently and passionately these names were spoken, I was half convinced that a religion of the human warrior class was filled with bloody-handed demigods of slaughter in a pantheon of war and death. I'm still not totally convinced that this isn't the case. He raised his adorned hand, waving it for all to see. I was sent to the war college in Penn's woodlands on Earth to learn the human outlook on war. I took classes and studied alongside other human high-ranking war leaders. I cannot tell you how many books I read, how much time I spent studying and writing and debating. What I learned, J.H.B. Like the Pulro, we have a long tradition of studying how to fight. The humans do that as well, but they also study how to make war. They know how to do it as efficiently and effectively as possible, and they apply that knowledge to the frightening effect. Suhu gestured again. 
my capstone paper, my thesis, was on the conquest of Nanzuna the Great. Even before it was completed, the war leader conclave was issuing early chapters as required reading for other war leaders. It has been described as a foundational book of the Sri military history. Some of my conclusions are basic tenets of our military theory. What was the feedback from my thesis committee? Sue gaze swept the room. His neck full opened with agitation and fear. Adequate! Some of the humans have called me the Slark Hans Delbruck, with Delbruck being regarded as the father of modern Terran military history. I am assured a place in the Hall of Elders to commemorate my writing and teaching. Yet, my analysis, my understanding of military theory, my grasp of warfare, is nothing special to the humans. The war elder speared the inquisitive cadet with a look. You ask me what my most fearful experience was. Learning that next to humans, our knowledge of warfare was like holding a candle next to a sun. Realizing that only a fluke of diplomacy prevented our empire from being shattered like the Kilra Empire. Knowing that the ferocity of the Balro, or the speed of the Kilra, or the techno-wizardry of the Maklari cannot contest the fact that humans have a god of war who whispers the secrets of victory into their ear. Understanding that, the galaxy is changed forever now that the humans have shown their claws. Suhu again gazed out of the cadets in the room, many of whom had now necrals partially raised in fear as well. Some of you may make it to higher levels of command, or even into our government. If you do, remember this. Always ensure the humans are our allies, for they are the masters of war, and the galaxy trembles at their march. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 913. How to Interact Safely with a Human. Written by Wanny91. Important announcement from Fleet Command to all Fleet personnel. With the recent past vote of the Human Federation to finally join the Galactic Union, Fleet Command expects to see a rise of human crew members on all ships in the fleet shortly. To make the integration and interaction with the new colleagues as pleasantly and as smoothly as possible, Fleet Headquarters, based on experience gained from working with a few humans already employed by the Union, has created the following list of advices on how to safely interact with humans. Advice 1. Never interrupt a human during his hibernation cycle. Like other species in the Union, humans are dependent on a natural, recurring state commonly called sleep in order for their brain to process the information gathered during the day. While sleeping, humans exhibit a suspension of all voluntary muscles and inhibition of sensor activity, which leads to a reduced interaction with their surroundings. This state can cause crew members with lesser intelligence, mainly staff from maintenance, to believe the human is dead. Because of this, all employees working in morgues are required to check any human body on life science before placing them into a cooling chamber. Footnote 1 Now, while it is possible to wake up a sleeping human, Fleet Headquarters, further called HQ, highly recommends to never do that unless it's an emergency. Not only do sleep-deprived humans not work at peak efficiency, 
but they really, really don't like to be woken up without a reason. Footnote 2. However, if you find yourself in a situation where you have to wake up a human during his hibernation cycle, HQ suggests that you offer him or her a so-called cup of coffee as compensation, which somehow improves their mood greatly. Footnote number three. Note one. To avoid another instance of morgue employees attempting to kill a human due to coming back from death, Fleet Headquarters has included this picture of an average Mandemar male to remind everyone of what they look like. Note number two. Fleet Command would like to avoid another repetition of the events where the grumpy human engineer worked on the ship's FTL drives while being under the effects of sleep deprivation. And while this event was led to new discoveries, we from Fleet Command are sure that the already existing four dimensions are more than enough for the Union, which has no need for a dimension consisting of pancakes. Note number three. While the effects of this liquid on non-humans aren't fully researched yet, Due to their importance to humans, the beverage called coffee will be obtainable shortly from every vending machine. Advice number two. Never eat human food without precautions. By nature, humans are omnivorous, which means that they possess strong stomach acids, which enables them to ingest a wide range of carbon-based food. And while some of their food is indeed digestible for certain species in the Union, HQ recommends that always checking any human food on its ingredients due to the possibility of it containing things like capsaicin, calcium, salt, gluten, and other minerals which should not be eaten. Furthermore, another danger for many crew members are human food products from their dessert category. These meals, often eaten by humans after their main course, contain high concentration of glucose, which is highly addictive for many species. Thus, crew members should avoid the sugar-ridden meals if possible. Fleet Command would like to ask everyone to pay close attention that no Madamar gets near a human dessert, and we are sure that everyone else would like to avoid another case of the hyperactive Madamars trashing their ships as well. Advice 3. Do not steal the human's lunch. While the danger of human food products have been explained in Advice 2, due to the delicacy, Non-dangerous human meals like sandwiches are in high demand amongst crew members. Fleet headquarters would like to, however, remind everyone to never steal and eat a human's lunch without his explicit permission. Fleet command will not accept any complaints regarding body harm, including the usage of laxatives done by humans whose lunch has been stolen. Advice number four. Avoid human alcohol. According to fleet rules, the intake of any form of psychoactive substances during working hours, especially human alcohol, is prohibited. Crew members should be aware that human alcohol contain a much higher concentration of ethanol compared to other alcoholic beverages common in the Union. This is why HQ advises to never drink any human alcohol which hasn't been thinned down to a tolerable level. Furthermore, due to the fact that some humans can grow accustomed to high or regular intake of alcohol, crew members should never participate in a human drinking contest without a valid contract of inheritance. Another important detail which has to be considered is the fact that some human alcohol is colorless and thus can look indistinguishable from water, which is a liquid humans legitimately need to survive. 
Because of the close resemblance, crew members in management positions are required to always double-check any liquid humans ingest from a non-union sanctioned bottles. And no, HQ will not accept the excuse. The human has assured me that he works better under the influence of alcohol. Not only are humans very good liars, but command will also not tolerate another incident like the one we do not speak of. Advice 5. Do not play card games against humans with money at stake. Some humans possess a natural talent for all kind of card games, which is why crew members should never play against them with money at stake. Especially the games called poker and blackjack should be avoided at all cost. This first because humans are very skilled at reading facial expressions while hiding their own. The second because humans, due to high processing power of their brain, are able to track the cards already played, which enables them to calculate the chances of winning without the assistance of a computer. Unfortunately, because card games aren't illegal in the Union, Free Command can't do anything if crew members lose their entire salary against a human. Advice 6. Never demand a human to take off his clothes. Unlike most species of the Unions, humans have evolved without an exoskeleton. Because of this, their ancestors dressed themselves in various layers of different fabrics, commonly called clothes. These clothes not only helped them preserve their own generated body heat, but it also protected them from their environment and acted as a protective layer between their weak flesh and the elements of their home planet. Due to this upbringing, wearing clothes has become a social norm amongst humans, which is why they show themselves naked only to those they trust. This is why crew members, curious or not, should never ask or demand a human to remove his clothes or barge into their cabins while they are showering. If possible, HQ would like to avoid another lawsuit of sexual harassment since the first one has cost the Union already too much, both in reputation and compensation money. Advice 7. Avoid Human Pets Following the court decision in the case of the Universe vs. Mr. Schrodinger, Humans are allowed to bring their pets on board a spaceship if they can prove that they are depending on them. However, due to the seemingly inability of certain humans to be scared of anything, these pets can range from small, harmless rodents up to the largest carnivores of the home planet. That is why HQ suggests that crew members under the size of 50 centimeters never go near a human pet if its handler isn't near them. Crew members should furthermore never trust a human saying they only want to play, which has been proven to be wrong. For those who have submitted complaints regarding human pets, just be glad that another court decision forbade humans from bringing domesticated animals from other planets and board ships. We are sure that others appreciate the fact that they won't see a predator from their home planet aboard a spaceship as much as we do. Advice 7 Human Music With the forthcoming joining of the Human Federation to the Galactic Union, HQ expects to see a drastic increase in human music played on all ships. While listening to music, common side effects amongst humans can include singing and dancing, which, uh, according to human doctors Fleet Commanders contacted, are perfectly normal behaviors. So there is no need to admit every human to the mental ward just because they move or sing along with weird noises. Thankfully, humanity has agreed to restrict the types of music allowed to be played publicly, 
which hopefully will decrease the instances involving metal, rock, and hip-hop music. Advice number nine. Don't surf unfiltered in the human internet. While the human internet can be full of wonderful things, many of them aren't, which is why Fleet Command has issued a filter to be installed on all computers. While this filter can be easily disabled to directly access the entire human network, HQ advises to never do that. Not only will Union not pay for any psychological trauma induced by the unfiltered content, but they will also hold any crew member responsible which causes the computer system of a Union to catch another virus. The so-called DAU fee humans charge for helping us get rid of any virus will be deducted directly from the wage of the crew member responsible for catching it in the first place. To reduce the incidents caused by careless crew members, Reed Command is currently evaluating the purchase of a human-developed operating system which, according to human IT experts, is much more advanced than our own current OS, which they have compared to something called Windows Vista. Fleet Command hopes that the above list of advices will help crew members to safely interact with the new colleagues. For those who would like to know more about the dangers of the human internet, HQ refers to the previous guideline titled, How to Safely Interact with the Human Internet. Have you worked with humans and would like to add your own advice to the list? Don't hesitate to contact either Fleet Command or Fleet Headquarters, or simply leave a comment below this announcement. Fleet Command thanks you for your cooperation. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 914. Percussive, written by Hicks Kem. My people have always been neutral. We take no sides in any conflict save those that directly involve us. We do not expand our territories except into those regions which are unclaimed by any sapiens even those not yet reaching towards the stars. We prefer to observe the other species, to learn of their behaviors and technological advances and artistic and cultural achievements. In short, we are what you might call a race of historians. It is this fundamental aspect of our nature that should lend credence to the following information. We are, collectively, breaking our own self-imposed neutrality to offer advice to the Galactic Council regarding the newcomer race known as humans. We observed the earliest attempts at spaceflight, much of which seemed to be driven by faction disputes and claims of global supremacy. They managed to arrive at the local satellite in a remarkable time after their first successful outgoing transmission. However, they did not bring any advanced equipment with them on their trip. This may seem irrelevant, but the Council should understand that this is a fundamental point in the human species. Their willingness to attempt something without full preparation is not unseen in the galaxy. However, most of the races that exhibit such behavior drive themselves to extinction long before achieving spaceflight, occasionally taking the rare gem of a viable life-supporting planet with them. These humans seemed poised to do the same thing during the half-improvised leaps from their world. We observed as they flung themselves at their satellite a few times, and then to appear to get bored with the whole thing. We observed as they tossed automated drones at their inter-system neighbors. On one such attempt, multiple factions were involved and nobody thought to ensure their uniform system of measurement in the process. 
We must confess our race find that to be quite uh, hubris. Their records indicate the planning had taken years, the launch and subsequent travel another year or so, and the landing approximately a minute and a half. Still, they continued their behaviors rather than plan for contingencies. They adapted subsequent attempts to the failures of the previous. We explain all of this here to establish the consistency with which humanity attempts advancement without preparation. More recent observations of their space travel behaviors has yielded some new and surprising pieces of information. Humans have long squabbled between themselves over the proper use of resources, and as such have developed the ability to draw out the functionality of what is available well beyond any capacity that we would ordinarily see. They travel with little to no redundancy in their systems, and often do not have replacement parts to hand. Still, they bounce from star to star, looking and searching for ever more colony-worthy worlds. One of our researchers managed to get a nanoprobe into one of their ships and maneuvered it all the way to the engine room. I sat there for nearly eight days, recording and transmitting events that were, frankly, quite shocking. After analysis, we determined that the humans were using technologies we believed to be wildly incompatible to improve the efficiency of their shields and engines. The kinetic energy of a shield impact was absorbed and stored for later use as propulsion and system support back through their engine. In terms that the Council may more readily appreciate, every particle of space dust they hit simply refueled their fuel stalls, save for travel between galaxies. Such a system would allow nearly endless travel. It was absurd, more to the point, yet was improvised. This is not a standard technology aboard the ships. This was the work of one of their engineers attempting to reduce his workload by redirecting power overflow from the shield system into the engines, thus reducing the amount of time he'd have to spend changing fuel cells. Any other race would have likely exiled the individual for such laziness and dereliction of duty. The humans gave the engineer a medal and a celebration. One might be inclined to think this engineer was obviously a savant who was using the travel as an opportunity for highly advanced research testing. One would be very wrong. The same engineer was observed in the same recording striking the engine with a large blunt object in excess of 20,000 runs of force. As he did, he insisted to a counterpart in the room that all it needs is the occasional percussive maintenance. We scoured our records for additional references to this concept. Maintenance using short bursts of sonic energy was previously unknown to us. Yet the humans have countless recorded events of this percussive maintenance being more effective than the considered and deliberate analysis of the mechanical fault. One such individual in the recordings, known as the Fonz, demonstrates considerable expertise in this field. Although the individual tends to focus his efforts on entertainment devices and personal transports. As a final point, and the main reason we address the council today, a reminder that humans go everywhere unprepared. For instance, their ships do not travel with onboard weaponry, no kinetic launchers, no plasma cannons, no heavy photon artillery, nothing of the sort. And yet, when one of their ships was assaulted by the Kudrian raider, the attackers were utterly destroyed, 
and the humans merely continued onward. We observed several similar attempts by the Kudrians to take the human vessel by ever-increasing force. Each time, the humans emerged unscathed and uninterested. After the sixth such encounter, we breached long-range observation protocols and performed an examination of the wreckage of the Kidriot vessel. We dispatched six different independent research teams for error reduction, and they returned nearly identical conclusions. Though no visible contact had been made between the ships, the Kudrian vessel and everything inside of it had been physically crushed. We immediately issued an alert to all of our observation platforms and examination ships to maintain a non-aggressive distance from all human vessels and to flee at any sign of hostile content. We would offer these humans no reason to consider us a threat. We continued our observations for some time after, gathering data as another ship passed through the asteroid field. It was there that we gained the most valuable insight. We examined our recordings over and over again, before finally understanding what the humans were doing. Their shield emitters were designed to be tuned to a radius that suits the need. They aren't prepared for a specific radius. They are prepared to adapt to all necessary radii, given the threshold of energy available. Thus, they simply use their shields to shove things aside. To be clear, this is a rapid process. The expansion of the shield radius is similar in dynamics to a supernova, albeit on a smaller scale. At such an expansion speed, larger objects such as ships act as nearly stationary objects while the smaller objects, namely the beings inside the ships, are tossed about rapidly. These sudden changes in position result in the crushing effect that we observe. We confess our curiosity got the better of us, and we examine the behavior for patterns. Once we had discovered the rather unique pattern, one built of lower frequencies following a steadier rhythm in the middle and higher frequency showing more variance. We broadcast a crude facsimile in the direction of one of their ships. What followed was our own first contact with humans. They approached us slowly, their shields never wavering, and we maintained weapon-style status. We had the opportunity to engage in open communication between our species and we took it. The leader of the ship 2112 introduced himself as Harris, and his first words to us were, So you guys like Rush, huh? We were confused. Harris explained that they had picked up the broadcast of music, and understood it to mean that we were friendly. We were treated to a full cultural exchange with the humans, who readily gave us copies of every sample of this music that he could access, then gave us the coordinates and access codes for additional samples. In conclusion, it would seem that the humans are highly adaptable species that functions on two major principles. First, any challenge can be overcome if you shove hard enough. Second, any culture can always use more music. It is, therefore, our neutral and unbiased recommendation to the Council that those with ill intent should avoid humans to the best of their ability, and those with amicable intent should bring their species' musical collection to any first contact proceedings. End of story. Story number two. You. Written by Luharia. 463 Terran years ago, to the day you attacked us. You attacked us. A civilization that was yet to even reach the stars. 
We did not understand why. What had we done? What could merit such a preemptive strike? The murder of our children, the decimation of our cities, the genocide of our civilization. We could not understand. War, we understood. War, we perfected. We practiced war for millennia before you arrived. If you had attacked us for territory, or resources, or slaves, we would have understood. But you did not. You saw. You came. You conquered. And you left. You didn't enslave us. You didn't exterminate us. Or at least you thought you did. After rebuilding our society, and only after decades of analyzing your communications, did we realize while you had attempted to wipe us away from the face of the earth, you decided that our potential for violence was far too great to risk your empire and your civilization. You taught us that the galaxy is cruel. You are the reason for the conquest of your little compact. You are the reason that we come out of our system seeking war. You are the reason for your own demise. You thought us rash, thought us greedy, you thought us violent, you thought us cowards. For centuries we have lain in wait, for centuries we have expanded. Any of our 14 planets could rival your entire empire. While you learned peace, we remastered war. While you grew complacent, we lay hidden beneath your very eyes. We developed technologies that your best minds couldn't even dream of. We modified the very strings of our beings to better destroy you. We are the Legion of Terror, and today we end the war that you started half a millennia ago. Today we come back from the grave to avenge our ancestors, fallen brethren. You barely won against them. You will lose to us. Today we condemn you to extinction. Today we avenge terror. Today we will teach you the meaning of Armageddon. Broadcast from all Legion ships on the day of their arrival in the home worlds of the Compact of Sharti. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 915 The Endless, Merciless Hordes Written by Dathuin We were arrogant. We had done this a thousand times before. We show up to primitive races systems, vaporize a fringe colony or a small city, and negotiate terms. It always worked. Thousands of civilizations fell to us. There is a holiday that we still celebrate called the Glorious Twelve, where for twelve straight days, time the sun rose over the capital, a new civilization was acquiesced. Occasionally, we engaged in a more belligerent civilization, but a quick, sustained offensive has them surrendering within a few days. Once or twice, we had to eradicate a civilization entirely, burning it out with the stars forever. But this civilization, it is pernicious. We arrived at the homeworld, and they had yet to colonize any of the other planets in their systems. They were so primitive that they had not even unified under a single government. We didn't even know who to negotiate with. 
we vaporized the larger city that we could find, hoping the sheer volume of casualties would cull them. But instead, they grew angry. They launched percussive fission weapons at us in retaliation. It would have not been an issue, but the sheer volume was beyond what we could have imagined. From across the entire globe, from the entire revolution, the barrage continued. The projectiles were launched from tubes in the earth, buildings on the surface, and vessels submerged under the water. At any given time, there were over a hundred missiles in space between us and them. At one point, there was over one thousand. When they hit, their intensity was beyond anything that we had ever experienced. It was like they were trying to bash through the protosteel body armor with a rock. But the rock was the size of a city. The explosions rocked our mother. In more than one case, the explosions were so massive that they completely engulfed entire battle groups. We thought our shields and metamaterials would protect us. But the violence of their explosions, the density of the radioactive particles, it was too much. They actually managed to cripple our fleet, destroying over 70 ships and limiting the capability of 900 more. Why, in the name of gods, would they ever have an arsenal like this? Then we detected an additional 3,000 weapons scattered across the surface of the planet, with the broadcast repeating over and over. After a while, our computers were able to translate it. We would rather annihilate ourselves than submit to you. We said that we could decontaminate their world. We were going to terraform it anyway. That's when the armies mobilized. Every city suddenly had its streets filled with uniformed beings. More than 20% of the entire population suddenly was in uniform, armed and armored, patrolling the lands and seas. We had to stop, to think. We decided a ground campaign would be best. Overwhelming force of a different kind. At first, we marched through the streets, killing thousands. We made great progress, and we occupied all of the greatest cities in less than 100 days. The fighting was fierce, but our technological superiority made our casualties considerably fewer than theirs. Still, they overwhelmed us with numbers. We still had casualties. We hadn't thought anything of it, but now their population was becoming a major asset in their favor. They literally numbered in the billions. We had one million soldiers on the surface within the day, but we were met by a force of two billion. It wasn't just the soldiers. Even the civilians fought us. The children and teachers, bureaucrats and servants, everyone took up whatever arms they could find and leveled them against our people. We offered them peace, technology, access to greater and wider universe than they have ever known. They were determined, it would seem, to take that from us and have it to themselves. Then we made a mistake. A solar flare interrupted the teleportation systems, and the cosmic skidding scattered any teleportation signals between the surface and the Yamada. We were no longer able to retrieve our technology. That's how we were able to maintain our technological advantage, by keeping it out of enemy hands. They killed over a thousand of us and took everything. Within mere seven-eighths of the day, they were able to disable the beacons on nearly every piece of technology they had stolen. We were only able to retrieve 23% of the lost equipment. This is when it turned over. Weapons, armor, 
vehicles, medical equipment, portable teleportation systems, power systems. They had a little bit of everything. The underground was somehow able to acquire this technology and adapt it in an inconceivably short time. Within another hundred days, we started hearing reports of insurgents armed with new weapons. But these weren't our weapons. No, they were worse, more vicious, more potent, and wasteful. Our weapons were designed to work almost indefinitely. Their weapons could barely survive 100 shots before the power banks needed replacement, completely burnt out. The armor they adapted was nothing but shields and a few small plates offering minimal coverage should their shields fail. Then the shields were equally powered, only able to operate for a few hours before parts would start to burn out. They had no concept of reusability. In the desperation, they did not make accommodations to conserve resources. We thought this would give us an advantage. It was a weakness. The onslaught was inconceivable. It took dozens of shots in rapid succession to collapse their shields, while their weapons not only collapsed ours, but would burn through 50 units of protosteel, and cut through our standard two-unit protosteel plating like it was non-existent. Their weapons were powerful enough to even cut through combat vessel armor plating. The corpses of our soldiers often had a quarter of their entire bodies vaporized. It was brutality beyond anything that we had ever experienced in the million years of conquest. We called for reinforcements. Six more armadas joined the fray. Two years had passed since we had arrived, and our progress was not slow. It was not halted. It was reversed. We were losing bases every month. The longer we waited, the more powerful they became. We withdrew entirely and decided to orbital bombardment was the best case. We changed our orbit to a safe distance and began bombardment. Or that is, we began firing. They had established a massive shielding system around every city. The shields were extending with every day that passed. Then, twenty days after we began bombardment, their shields fell and an instant later came back. They had managed to accomplish something that we did not fully understand, nor were we entirely capable of replicating ourselves. They had managed to reinforce their planet's natural magnetic field and converted it into a planetary shield. Nine days later, nine more armadas joined us, bombarding the planet's shield with renewed vigor. What little information we were able to glean through the shields told us that they were installing new reactors every day. With each passing day, the shields grew stronger, more refined, more intense. Eventually, the bombardments were just costing us resources, and we had to stop. At this point, we could only look at the planet with visual senses, and much of what they did was going on below ground. What we could see was that they were fixing their atmosphere, cleaning up the pollution, building up infrastructure. It was like they were mocking us. They had gone back to their daily lives, farming, driving around, engaging in recreational activities. We called for all of the Amadas. While we waited, we began establishing military bases on every celestial body that could support it. We stood by, watching for two more years. We thought that they were just sitting around, living their lives, ignoring us. We were wrong, they had rebuilt their economy and directed the entirety of its constructive power to advancing their stellar military capabilities. At the two-year mark, 
Great hatches opened up in the ground across the planet. In some places, massive turrets rose from the ground. They somehow were able to fire through the planetary shield without interrupting it. The blasts exceeding anything that we'd ever seen or dreamed of. The beams would convert 50% of the mass of anything that had struck into antimatter. Needless to say, there was no substance that could ever possibly exist that would survive that. The beams passed through our ships like they were not even there, then turned our own ships into planet-destroying weapons. The entire third armada was wiped out instantly when one of their vessels was struck by it. We fled to the border of the solar system, but the blasts harried us until we managed to get past the Oort Cloud. They managed to destroy 27 out of the 300 of our martyrs, 27,840 ships, 61,855,900 of our people were dead in the span of seconds. It was genocide. They were determined to burn us out of the stars. That's when a few hundred inter-orbital freighters began ferrying materials and laborers to their moon. We watched in horror as millions of these creatures built two dozen star docks and began instructing an armada of their own. These star docks were large enough to build 100 ships at the same time, but they seemed to be only building a single ship each. The speed with which they built was incredible. The numbers only grew. They had massive omnidirectional 3D fabricators, thousands of them, and the millions of engineers working on these ships. Each star dock was putting out a ship every two months, and there was nothing that we could do to stop them. We circled their system impotently, trying to avoid the antimatter cannons as much as possible. As soon as they left the star dock, they sent two groups to us, at opposite ends of the system, six ships each. Each one, as it would be known, served a special purpose. One emitted signals that interfered with our communications and sensors while firing small beams that disrupted our particle cannon blasts before they could hit a target. Another had swarms of heavily armored drones that numbered in the millions and moved with an unnatural coordination and lethality, firing unending waves of particle blasts. One had smaller, less powerful version of the antimatter cannons, but three of them. Another seemed to synthesize and fire hyper-intelligent missiles at an impossible rate with unerring accuracy. All armed with heavy metal antimatter, we suspect anti-mercury warheads. It took us a single conflict for them to wipe out the remaining 273 armadas. Twelve ships completely outclassed and utterly obliterated 273,000 ships. These primitive beasts had made more progress in four years than we had in 400,000, and they were absolutely resolved to annihilate our entire civilization. They started by destroying all of our military installations, and the more than 100 million soldiers stranded in their system. We no longer could tell what they were up to, but rather the front lines between their space and ours. One by one, they visited our colonies and liberated them from our glorious empire, these loyal to the Empire were destroyed. The rest were cowed. The monsters pushed deadly against our Empire, destroying or stealing one system after another. They continued doing so until they reached the borders of their galaxy. It was finally at this point that they offered peace. 
they began installing newer cannons on nearly every planet on the border of their system. When tested, these proved to have a range of a thousand light-years, and instead triggered small, short-lived singularities. In the ten years of our war with them, they had outpaced us technologically, so much so that they seemed like magical beings. They advanced in literally every imaginable field, and our incursion was the catalyst. Now they dominate the entire galaxy. Their own armada is comprised of nearly a thousand ships, and the new ones make the first ones we encountered look like pleasure cruisers. Now, as if it's really a choice, these humans offer us peace with a cannon pointed at our hearts. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 916 The Correct Answer, written by Ogosh Chilik vibrated in place, his talons clicking softly against the smooth grey floor of the Department of First Contact Affairs. Despite his normally composed professional demeanour, he was experiencing a first in his entire career as the First Contact Liaison, and in his mind he would be forgiven for the childlike enthusiasm with which he bounced. To his side were two other liaisons that had arrived for the appointment that followed his, both giving sideways glances to the bubbly yet lay bureaucrat. Tilik felt half bad for them. His meeting would take the rest of the day. The door beside Tilik slid silently to one side as the Yavri attendant stepped through accompanied by another yet lay first contact liaison. Liaison had a look of a business-as-usual boredom on his face as he walked away, lifting his hollow pad to check his schedule. The Yavri attendant, a quadrupedal three-eyed alien covered in blue-gray fur, wished that the other liaison farewell before turning to face Talik. Mr. Talik Aventilt, she asked, her voice barely a whisper. One of her hands twitched at a gesture at her side. Ah, yes, Talik spoke double her volume, bowing slightly to the attendant. We're ready for you. She motioned for him to enter the room on one hand and twitched another gesture with the other. Talik walked into the near silent room as his talons continued to click across the floor, echoing off the empty walls of the conference hall. Seated at the table at the far end of the room was Talik's three superiors. His supervisor, a bipedal alien covered in stone-like protrusions, his supervisor, another Yavri, and what Talik could only assume was the department's director. Basankai woman, ten feet tall with a dozen spindly legs and four equally lanky arms. Talik guessed that when word got out about the results of his mission, the top brass wanted to confirm it firsthand. This was his first time meeting his boss's boss's boss, let alone a Basankai. He suddenly felt doubly nervous. Welcome back, Talik began Hawk, his supervisor. You've met Tenfa, acting head of our department. The Yavri nodded wordlessly, a gesture to Leek returned. To his right is the head of First Contact Affairs, Miss Five Moons of Longing. After your initial report, she wished to oversee these proceedings personally. The Basankai leaned over her table, eyes fixed on the little bureaucrat. Yitlay was by no means the largest race in the galactic community. But Leek still felt overpowered. Mr. Aventilt, boom, five moons in a deep tenor voice. I do not need to remind you that my time is precious, and you will be severely punished for wasting it 
if you falsified your report. So, I will ask only once, did your aliens answer the question correctly? Tillich hesitated. He knew he'd done nothing wrong, and the report was truth. Every word, he just needed to find his calm. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. When he opened them again, he found confidence in his three words. Yes, they did. Five moons returned back to a table. Then, let us begin. Hawk. Hawk tapped several keys on his data pad, and the wall behind Talik at the front door of the room lit up with a series of screens, each containing a unique set of data related to his report, as well as the first contact protocols and jargon. Hawk cleared his throat. Please state your name, ID number, and the planet of your observation for the record of this proceeding. Talik Aventilt, first contact liaison number 45-45-8912, observing arm 9, reporting of first contact for the race of aliens known as humans of planet Earth. As Talik spoke, his words were translated to text that scrolled down on the screen behind him. Human and Earth were both being flagged for clarity later. You may begin, Mr. Aventilt. Thank you. Talik stepped forward, wearing his datapad, eddying several specific parts of his report he knew would be referenced. In accordance with the first contact protocol, first contact was conducted following a three-cycle observational period of the alien's planet in order to acquire information regarding their culture, scientific advancement, language, and mannerisms. It was found that during this period, the humans, hereafter referred to as humanity, had several cultures and only rudimentary universal mannerisms. Could you give us an example of the universal mannerism? Quietly interjected the Yavri supervisor, Dinfar. Certainly. Talik tapped on his data pad, and a new screen blinked in behind him, displaying a human male with tan skin bearing his fangs. As you can see, this specimen is displaying his teeth while tensing several muscle groups in his face that makes the sides of his mouth curl upwards. This is seen by humanity as a sign of joy, and was emulated during first contact to establish trust. Talik swiped the picture off his screen and continued. After humanity had passed each of our standards for initiating contact, humanity's ruling class was contacted at the beginning of Cycle 3. As expected, this caused panic in several settlements around the planet, though violence was contained to smaller incidents. After one cycle period, a single representative of humanity was selected for interview aboard the liaison vessel. This proved to be the most difficult step of the process. And why is that? asked Hawk. Almost before he finished speaking, Talik had displayed several data points about planetary conditions, including gravity, atmospheric composition, temperature, and weather variations. Save for the hum of the computers, the room fell into an uncomfortable silence. This cannot be correct, mumbled Five Moons. I assure you it is. Are those temperature ranges accurate? Yes, though uh, very few humans actually live in the extremes. And the weather, they really experience such devastation. Dozens of times per cycle. Satisfied with the stunned silence that followed, Talik continued. The proceedings continued for several hours. Tillich giving a thorough walkthrough of the entire process, though this was mostly for the report. 
Everyone in the room was now waiting on one specific part. The question. Once the interview chamber had been conditioned to Earth's habitat and humanity had selected its ambassador, he was teleported aboard the liaison ship and I personally conducted the interview. My full report will contain the entirety of the interview. But for the purpose of this hearing, I've highlighted the final questioning of the ambassador. The three supervisors leaned in over the table at the monitors. Finally, the part that they had been waiting for. Talik tapped on his datapad, and a single screen filled the entirety of the wall. The video showed a human adult male, slightly taller than Talik, sitting opposite of him at a white table with several small displays and a translator blinking. Text superimposed over the human read Eric Larson of Norway. He was dressed in what appeared to be a black full body covering in crisp, ordered style, accented with a white under covering. You are being very patient with us, Eric. Thank you, said Talik in the video. They could see that Talik made an effort to curl the sides of his mouth upward to emulate a smile. I only have one question left before we conclude. Once we are finished, you'll be returned to the same place that you were retrieved, and a copy of this interview will be given to your government for its records. Oh, of course, Eric replied with a wave as he folded his hand. His voice was calm and even. Mr. Larson, according to your previous answers, you marked the present recorded year of your civilization as 2005 cycles of a common era. Correct? That's correct. And in the time since your species began recording its history, you've gone from shaping stone tools to harnessing the power of nuclear fission, exploring extraplanetary bodies, including a manned mission to your own moon, and the creation of a global digital communication network. The ability for your species to learn and grow has accelerated at, frankly, a startling speed, and shows no sign of stopping. Eric didn't speak, though his head nodded up and down slowly. However, in this time you've also informed us of incidents of incredible violence carried out by your species, including two within the last 100 cycles. Incidents you refer to as world wars. Even recently, one of your nations, the United States, became a victim of a loss-of-life event that resulted in the nation mobilizing for war with several others. Eric continued to nod, though without a smile. My final question is this. Do you believe humanity is ready to be lifted into the galactic community? The supervisors watched with bated breath. Here it comes. No, replied Eric. The supervisors exhaled in relief. Hawk chuckled. No, repeated Talik. Could you explain why? Humanity has made incredible strides towards peace in recent history. By our standards, we live in the most peaceful and prosperous time of our history. But it is not enough. We have many problems, Mr. Aventult. Problems that humanity would only carry over into your community if we joined now. It would be unfair to both of us to burden you with them. If humanity is to make it to the stars, it should be as one undivided, and that is a lesson that we have not yet learned. The video paused and silence fell over the room once again. Talik looked over his superiors, brimming with the pride of a parent. Hawk spoke first. They answered right, he chuckled. 
We so rarely find sentient species that make it past the three-cycle filter. The ones that remain are too eager to leave their world and express no humidity, stated Five Moons. This species, despite its violence, recognizes its own faulty behavior. It is a good first step. The Basenkai typed for a few months on a datapad, collecting all the data from the report and ending the recording. And we can guide them from here. Good work, Dalik. Hawk nodded in his subordinate. We'll move forward with lifting procedures following the submission of this report to the governance of allied races. That'll be all. Dalik gave a deep bow before shuffling out the door with the Yavari attendant. Walking down the hall back to his office, Dalik couldn't help but curl the sides of his mouth again. Welcome, humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 917. Story number one. From the Ashes. Written by Eat Frozen Peas. Brittle black branches crunched beneath my boots as I strode through the skeletal remains of the forest. Flakes of ash swirled in the air, drifting silently amongst the monolithic charred trunks that had once supported the verdant canopy. Here and there, ember beds still seethed, and smoke bellowed from the smoldering cores of larger trees. Though the flames had died out, the heat was still so intense that my exposed fur shriveled at the ends. Removing my helmet, I inhaled deeply, despite the discomfort. My nostrils filled with the scent of charcoal. My ears twitched involuntarily in the hot air as they registered the crackling of the wood and the gentle pinging of the cooling metal. The next town's remains were not far now, and I held no illusions as to what I would find. The calm in my helmet crackled loudly into life. Rescue Retrieval Unit 45 report in... Though, professional as always, Rin could not keep the exhaustion from his voice. I couldn't blame him. This was destruction on a scale we had never personally experienced. A whole planet burned. A civilization up in smoke. A people in ashes. And us sifting through the remains with ever less hope. RR approaching last known location of firefighting crew Terra 6. No contact. Noted. Next scheduled check-in, 28 minutes. Acknowledged. When the news of the disaster broke, dozens of species had volunteered to come to the aid of the Chiri. The Lu, Menon, Rexed, Bawun, and even the newcomers like humans. It would have been a great moment in intergalactic cooperation, if not for the utter failure of our efforts. Crews of all species had been dispatched to anchor points, cities, and villages around the globe. The violence of the updrafts made dropping in difficult and flying out impossible. There was no hope for rescue. All they could do was dig in and save what they could. We lost contact with more than 80% of them. We watched from orbit as flames raced over their positions. Now, as the ash took its place of the fire in the sky, we searched for survivors. The remains of the tree at least 7 meters wide collapsed behind me. The snap and rumble of its branches accompanied by the shriek of metal giving way. An entire civilization built in the canopy of a tropical rainforest. Human air. No history of forest fires, no volcanoes, no knowledge of aliens that wanted to meddle beneath their roots. No idea of the danger that they were in. 
So, unprepared, I put the thought from my mind. I was nearing my search coordinates now, and I needed my senses sharp and focused. A clearing loomed ahead of me. An attempt at a firebreak. A lump of twisted blackened metal sat off to the side, too large for the cheery to have used. Human machinery. I keyed the comm. RR-45 on location, visual on equipment, no sign of survivors. Beginning sweep. Acknowledged. I set up my perimeter and began my search. I heard nothing but crumbling of trees. Saw nothing but charcoal and ash. Smelled nothing but dust and burnt flesh. My stomach turned. I had expected this, trained for this, but it was never easy to face. Following the scent, I made my way between the enormous trunks to the bodies. They were mounded up in the roots of the tree. Six of them pressed against each other in a futile effort to shield themselves from the flames. Lingering traces of steam seeped from beneath them. They had doused their clothes in a lastish effort to save themselves. RR-45 reporting casualties. Terror of six recovered. Appears no survivors. Continuing search for locals. I was already turning away from the sight of melted clothes and scorched flesh when I heard it. Faint, rasping. Belly there, breathing. Hope filled me. One survivor. Huwak prays, just give me one survivor. I leapt to the pile, pulling aside the scorched remains of the first one, then the next body. They were packed so tight that I was literally peeling the bodies from the pile, checking helmets, checking chests. Nothing, nothing again, holding the fifth body free. I froze. Here, my survivor. Covered by the others, it was largely unscathed. Soot covered it, but I could see its face. Lips blistered, delicate skin cracked behind a helmet visor. Unconscious, but alive. Leading over it, I realized I was shouting into my comms. We have a survivor, one survivor. Get a medevac to my location immediately. The noise seemed to rouse the human, and its eyelids cracked open. I needed to get it back into the clearing where the carrier would land. I gently drew the human into my arms, moving as carefully as possible, and turned to leave. The strange, dark eye suddenly seemed to focus. Its arms flailed, its head shook. A seizure? No. It wants something. I'm sorry, I murmured softly. But your companions are dead. The eyes flashed, the lips parted, a rasp. Don't try and speak. We're gonna get you out of here. Louder rasping, more gesturing. The brow furrowed. It pointed back desperately. They're dead. I'm sorry. We can't go back. A sudden jerk and the human struck me. It was rasping furiously, gasping for air and coughing as blood colored its thin lips. I had heard about human social bonding and it would not leave its team. I had to show it. I'm sorry, I whispered again, but look. I turned back to show it the chart, unmoving remnants of its friends. They're gone. The human in my arms nodded abruptly. A gesture for yes. It understood. I turned to go. Again, it twisted in my grip. No. Something else. It gestured weakly back to where it had lain. Set it down. Did it wish to die with its pack? You wish to die here? It shook no. Gestured, every movement looking like agony. In confusion, I stared at the corpses, 
at the roots where they lay, at the dark hole between the roots where my survivor had huddled. I stopped. The hole, lying in my arms, the human's pulpy stiffen, following my gaze. It nodded again, vigorously. Yes, yes, the hole! As delicately as I could, I laid my precious cargo on the ground. I sniffed, ears twisted forward, every sense straining as I approached the burrow. I smelled blood, burnt skin, and fabric. Water, soil, ash. And something else. Something musty. I heard rustling. Not rasping breath or shifting ash, but the gentle sounds of scales sliding against each other. The sounds of living creatures. I howled with joy and plunged over the body, staring at the soaked loam around the trunk until I could see what lay beneath. A small burrow, soaked with the last reserves of the human water tanks and packed with at least forty cheery. They were huddled together, nearly catatonic from lack of oxygen and heat, but survivors all. I heard a faint buzzing and realized that I was howling into the calm, all professionalism fallen away in joy. Rinna was shouting too. The evac team was coming. They were going to live. Lifting out the first four, I turned to show the human that they were safe, that they had triumphed, and my fur fell flat. The soot-covered chest had still. There was no more rasping. The thin, pale lips were twisted upwards, blood coating its chin. Behind the mask, those strange seed-shaped eyes were fixed and glossy. Gone. The last human of Fireteam Terra-6 had seen out its duty and had died in peace. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 918, story number one. Colors, written by Operation Technician. Every race has colors. Not visible colors, not ones that a mind can define as blue or green, or even any frequency of light outside of the visual spectrum of most species. A color is a feeling, an effect that a being has on its surroundings. We built eyes, computer-controlled lenses that visualize these effects as colors, based on everything known about being observed. We, the gray, are the color of precious metal, gold and silver, and the color of power, control and wisdom. Understandable, we evolved to rule over everything we create, and later to rule over those we meet. The makers evolved to create in order to survive, to improvise and adapt, a brown and yellow color of creation. The Haxor, an artificial race with a glamorous blue aura of color of wisdom and intelligence, logic and understanding. The Blair, the hive species of warriors raised by their dreadful world to fight every minute of every day just to survive, illuminated by red color. The purple tall, capable of adapting to the minds of the alien species and hearing their very thoughts and feelings. But we do not wear eyes anymore. Now the eyes make us blind, for all we see now is the void of space itself. The pitch, black, smog, flowing from the very ground we walk on. We cannot understand how the species managed to reach space, 
Every action of their existence was one of destruction, not fighting. Nothing like the Red Black Warriors. These beings came with the very color of entropy in their hands. Their ships terrified us. These ships moved on destruction, were powered by destruction, and constructed for little more than destruction. They were built, yes, but they were built by destroying resources, and in their destruction turning them into what was needed. We thought that we had mastered war, that the galaxy was ours, as dispersed as we were, and that eventually every race in it would heed our rule. The beings of the Void, however, had no need for war or rules. The first time, they stood before our world and offered the ultimatum that we could not agree to. The second time, our worlds burned, but not in war. They burned in destruction, pure and uncontrolled, with weapons of unrestrained as the stars themselves. Our own tools designed not to harm the worlds that they were used on, to be safe for everything but the intended target, and ranges that allow time to close and decide on strategy were as ineffective as toothpicks against steel when it came to fighting the warships of the color of void. And when our last planet remained, the darkness built the skies above us. They asked a second time for our surrender, and every species on their own agreed. The first of us witnessed the building of the rings we live on now. We saw as they crashed planets together, and in the wake of those collisions extracted the resources to build the rings around a black hole that they mined for power, building an artificial star around it to light the rings. We could not comprehend how this color, this destructive existence, could exist and survive without destroying itself. But then, the most curious of us began approaching the destroyers building the rings. They were thought suicidal, of course, for what they would come to meeting death itself. We learned that death was not the worst of options. The deviants returned all alive, but many had spots in their brilliant color. Spots of darkness, and the spots grew with every cycle. The darkness, we saw, was an infection, one that consumed colors. And we feared the darkness even more. Those that were turned dark failed to spread it, but they had been changed in ways we could not understand. In their eyes, minds, souls, we saw only the void. I was in the second wave of deviance. I was, perhaps, curious. Perhaps I had given up on existence. I found myself next to one of them. I disabled my eyes as I entered the zone where they worked just to be able to see through the black of the presence. I spent several cycles amongst the beings, and every moment had me in a confused frenzy. I realized at first that the creatures could think, where, as before, I was convinced that no being with such a purity in its existence could do anything but what its color indicated. Destruction, in this case. Now I realized that these creatures could understand, learn, and make decisions that usually made sense. But they could do much more than that. Every one of them, it seemed, had the capability to take control of any number of others, in a permanent structure of employment and command. At the same time, each creature could understand another one on a level that airwaves could not possibly carry. Often, they functioned as a group without so much as a word, somehow knowing what the other was going to do. 
The ways of creation always involve destruction rather than transmutation or manipulation. But, incredibly enough, the destruction was so organized that it could build in ways that made the few makers that I witnessed helping around impressed beyond signals. And then I understood. I saw what all the deviants saw as they turned to darkness. Each human was capable of more than one way of existence. Where we, in our fallen empire, employed species in areas that they were best at and nothing else. The humans only had themselves to lean on. The black that surrounded them and blinded us was not a pure color. It was many in one, merging into confused the eyes into creating a black aura around the beings and everything they made. And then... Another idea was presented to me by the humans. I too could do more than rule and control. My race was no longer in command and never would be. And I realized that, as incredible as it sounded, I too could create. I too could imagine and create ideas with my mind. I too could build and destroy both as the makers and Blair warriors. I could understand species with some practice and experience, and just like the tall were raised to. And in my color, a dark spot expanded, consuming my brilliant gold and silver. End of story. Story number two. Watching from the shadows, written by Hidden Fox. Despite its name, the Watcher-class exploration vessel was not primarily visual. It had a large amount of cameras and had a particularly powerful telescope to be fair, but it was built for something else. Like many leaps in technology, the Watchers were built for war, but not these ones. Watchers had originally been built under different circumstances, as an electronic warfare ship. The Watchers had stripped away all weapons, firing computers and other unnecessary military features, replacing them with cameras, telescopes, and cloaking. However, the Watchers had kept the powerful electronic warfare system. In fact, it had been upgraded. Why would such a ship be made? Why waste cloaking on an explorer? Why? It's because the Watchers are not explorers. A better word would be spies. The United Terran States knew that other life existed. They had evidence that those other species had created an intergalactic government. And boy, were they scared. How did aliens think, speak, act? And so they sent watches. And that is why above the ash-world homeworld of the Kirkai, the Pizgloria rested. Hey Luke, um, how long until the translator is done? Postmate Lena leaned into the tech bay. Oh, um, um, let me check. Xeno-linguistical specialist Luke Smith was a fantastic linguist, but he also choked up among strangers. So he made translators, and bloody good ones at that. It should be done in a few minutes. It'll be done before your tea is... Uh, Luke gestured to one of the several screens in front of him. How did you know I was making tea? Um, it's 3.23 ship time, Nina. You do this every day, and I put the honey in the cupboard. Oh. Okay, then. I'll be back in a moment. Make sure you add the translator to the ship's computer. Aye. The translator had some technical issues, so it had been delayed. It was now 7.42pm, ship time, and the captain was waking up for the morning. Does anyone have any coffee? 
Captain Leonard de Lanara entered the bridge, looking totally unfit to lead. Disheveled and not entirely awake, he really stumbled onto the deck. The captain was very, very good at his job. He just preferred to sleep for most of it. Oh, Captain, uh, we just got the translator online. The pilot of the Piz Gloria was also the newest member of the admittedly small crew. Emery Lakowski was the most energetic of the crew. Leonard said something that sounded like coffee, but no one was too sure. There's some in the galleys, sir. Emery, like always, was beaming. Leonard mumbled something else and shuffled off the bridge. By the time he was awake and headed back to the bridge, which were two different times, the mood had visibly, audibly, and somehow olfactorily changed. The crew, all a dozen, minus Leonard, were staring at the screens with facial expressions ranging from somber to grief. What happened? You guys okay? Luke was the only person to respond. It's the ash, sir. It's unnatural. What? They're dying, sir. It's a mass extinction. The Kolthai, the sentient species that inhabited Korkai, had recently joined the Galactic Senate. A galactic rule that was put in place after too many tragedies was about to cause another. The Kolthai were currently going through an uplifting process. They couldn't defend themselves against some of the older species. So, for 25 Galactic Senate cycles, no other species was allowed on the planet of Kirkai. The issue with this rule were being seen now. A supervolcano with the Kirkai somehow didn't know about had erupted near the capital city. The eruption threw thousands of tons of ash into the air, blocking the sun and creating an artificial winter. It had also decapitated the Kolthai government, killing most of the leaders and destroying the main communications channels. Within years, almost all planetary Kothai would die, and even more of the planet's natural environment. And no one was allowed to help. An opportunity presented itself, and humanity took it. With result, the entirety of the United Terran States Navy bore down on the planet of Kirkai. Millions of soldiers were packed into the hulls of troop transports, billions of kilos of gear. Jumping out of light speed and mass, the rudimentary sensors of the Kithai had sensed this massive fleet arrive just outside the planet's gravity well. Hundreds and hundreds of ships formed up and burned hard towards Kakai. This fleet was seen by the rest of the galaxy, and they mourned for their friends that they might have made. The black and grey troop ships opened, disgorging thousands of white dropships. They charged right into the store of ash and dust. They breached the atmosphere, flying as fast as they could over the most populous areas. Their targets in range, they activated their payloads. Instead of missiles flying, searchlights lit up the ground. Instead of guns firing, speakers blared. The same message was repeated across the planet. We are humanity! We come in peace. We are humanity. We bring aid. Repeated in the language of the Kothai, the thousands of dropships, each speaking with the voice of humanity. As the dropships landed, they released thousands of soldiers and millions more volunteers. Instead of an invasion, they brought aid. Doors marked with the Kothai griff of peace and help released doctors, nurses, rescue workers, and anyone else who wanted to help. They brought food and medicine, all compatible. Hastily modified corvettes plunged into the atmosphere, 
turbines whirring, filtering the ash from the air. Armored recovery vehicles were used to clear rubble. Helicopters, previously armed with missiles, carried the hurt to hospitals. Shuttles brought hundreds of clergy, each trained in the rituals and rites of the Kothai religions. And coffins. Oh, so many coffins. Each one was handmade according to the religion of the Kothai, and blessed in the same languages. And above a hundred worlds, in a hundred languages, watchers uncloaked and declared, We are humanity. We come in peace. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 919. Story number one. Playing God, written by Nickel 5. I had grown attached to humans, and now their army beneath me was about to die. From the ground the battle looked even, but from what I saw from far above the carnage was that they were being outflanked. Really, no way that they could have known about the Therisians' cloaking technology. This was the first time the Therasi had used it in battle. I had been here for the humans since the beginning. I saw the first animals crawl out of the ocean. I saw the first ape who preferred to stand upright, then taming fire. The birth of civilization, Sputnik reached beyond, and Circe's fall being colonized. Each milestone I made sure to see, and the final one was their extinction. This was just one battle, but if the planet fell, humanity would likely not recover. The sorry weaponry was based on a dangerous balancing of unstable isotopes to fire tungsten rods. They were the first species I have seen use this as their primary firearm. Humans had experimented with something similar with railguns, but the Thessauri made them handhold, nuclear, and mass-produced them. This planet was rich in tungsten and uranium. If the Thessauri controlled it, their reserves of these resources would more than double. I could try and help, but I won't. My ancient race had long since plateaued. For billions of years, I have traveled and looked at life. During that time, what I have learned is not to interfere. Not all species can live, and I am one being. If I stop a plague, a new one will appear in the next generation. It was prolonged, not saving when I interfered. I loved humans, but I couldn't show favoritism. It wasn't the way of the universe. I looked closer at the line. At a particular spot of interest near the left flank, the machine gun jammed. The marines' eyes grew in horror, knowing they only had seconds before the onslaught arrived. The line fired their hand weapons desperately as the Thessauri poured over no man's land, bullets riddling Thessauri leading the charge. The barbed wire was crawled over, the dead eventually making a bridge for the living. The makeshift fortifications were met. The machine gun was unjammed. The gun was being loaded. The sorry tungsten poured into the marines. A quick death. The trench was overrun. The humans could not compete with the sorry in hand-to-hand combat. Behind the lines, fresh marines were already moving up to push back. The artillery would focus soon on the spot and halt the sorry. Humans would hold probably even take back the trench, but it's another pound on the nail in the coffin. The cloaked Thessauri moved closer. My heart sank. The marines would die unless they fell back soon. 
The planet was doomed when the Cloakers entered the forest. It was just these lives I wanted to save. Maybe I could speak to the commander and get him to fall back, or to the men directly. Yes, over the radio and let them know the cloaked troops. I wanted you, but I knew I couldn't. The last time I had interfered, I grew too attached. The Cloakers were almost through the forest. My eyes swelled, tears about to pour out from them. Over the airways, an order came to immediately take cover. Close your eyes and cover your ears. I listened as well. My eyesight was never the same after Los Alamos. The vibrations of conventional explosives rocked my senses. Just one explosion. Then, for the first time on the battlefield, silence. I opened my eyes to behold what they had done. The forest was gone, the cloakers with it. An artificial caldera at its place. The front opened up again and gunfire. The Cesari was shocked and didn't react for another five seconds. That's all the humans needed. They pushed forwards. The Saurians tried to hold, but within three minutes, their front line was either dead or falling back. I saw the transport ships fire up in the distance. The day was won. I flew back to the human space and listened to the human commanders. They did the normal post-victory grim congratulations. A bottle of scotch was passed about, each commander giving a toast to the men and then the general before taking a drink. The commander passed on the scotch, choosing instead his canteen, then spoke. This was a risky move. The men were bait, and we had to bank on no information getting back to the Cesari, that we knew of their clunkers. After a short pause, he continued, even a simple radio call would have been intercepted by the Thesari and could have changed their tactics, or worse, caused our men to panic and rout. The commander looked up at the sky, right at me. I knew that he couldn't see me, but it was unnerving. But uh, someone up there was looking out for us today. Humanity doesn't need me to play God. They never have, and I won't start now. End of chapter. Story number two. Invitation written by Aldrich Spawn. In the earliest days of the 22nd century, mankind finally emerged victorious amongst the stars. The final key had been understanding the quantum theory which had led them to the creation of the non-locality engine, a device that allowed near instantaneous travel to any spot in space. We left the Earth with high hopes and only two real goals. The first was simple. We wanted to expand and explore the final frontier. The second was simultaneously just as simple and yet vastly more complex. We sought contact with others. We had long believed that we were not alone, that somewhere out amongst the void there had to be another race, possibly many, who were waiting for our arrival. Whether as an enemy or as an equal, we did not know. But either way, we as a species had dreamt of the first meeting for centuries. We were disappointed. The emptiness of space lived up to its title. Except for us, no other ship traveled the cosmos. Except for us, no other race spread into the sky. There was no great enemy, no steadfast ally. No great empire or confederacy spanning the galaxy. 
We found no sign of the little green or grey men which we had long believed to have been watching our people and visiting our world and whom we thought would be there to greet humanity as we stepped into the wider universe. There was just us. In our sorrow, we continued to search, and eventually we found race after race, each more interesting than the last, and not one of them had left the surface of their mother world. They hadn't even tried. Alone amongst those which we discovered, humanity had been the only race to not reach an understanding with their place in their native ecosystem. We, and we alone, had been forced to struggle and fight and rage against everything and everyone. And it had made us strong. If necessity was the mother of invention, then adversity was the mother of progress. Our suffering made us seek out ever new heights from which to cast our gaze, pushing us beyond our limits and time and time again. No other species had attempted to leave the shelter of their protective motherworld's embrace, because they saw no need. They felt no desire, wanting for nothing, sought nothing greater. They were complacent in their security, pampered from cradle to grave. And as was our nature, we grew envious, and was our right. We were merciful, because mercy is a gift which only the strong may possess. We had the tools and the ability to take everything which they took for granted, everything that they held dear, and make it our own or crush it entirely. But we did not, because in the end it all came down to one simple fact. We'd been alone so very long, and we wanted nothing more than to end our solitude. And so, in our desire for companionship, for another whom we would call our equal, we sent a message. Four sentences only, four sentences which mankind wished to hear ourselves for countless ages, sent out to a hundred thousand worlds. You are not alone. We are here. We are waiting. Come and join us. And for the first time on countless planets, beings who had never wanted for anything, never lacked for anything, looked to the stars and dared to dream of more. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 920. Story number one. Humans are weird. Empty your pockets. Written by Betty Adams. With sister was sorting through the various bandage volumes when 43 trolls flew into the medical ward and landed on a shelf above her with an exaggerated sigh. As he didn't signal for her attention, she continued slipping the tubes into the assigned slots. It was very useful, she mused, that the liquid bandages were so versatile. Save for a few rare humans with overactive immune systems, the carbohydrate mix was an excellent source of protection for most injured membranes. She had just finished slotting in the pain tubes into the storage area and had begun to arrange the nutrient additions by target species when 43 trolls emitted another sigh and flung himself chest down across the shelf so that his head was near her view. But as his binocular eyes were pointed at a comparative anatomy chart on the wall, she continued her task. When he flipped over on his back and proceeded to emit another sigh, she closed the cabinet and turned her center mass to face him. Can I help you with something, 43 Trills? she asked. 
He gave another sigh and flipped over, crossing his wing hooks under his chin and staring at her with what she assumed was a sad expression. Do Shatar have built-in transport pouches? He asked in a tone that was noticeably too high for a human staff to hear. In our environmental suits, of course, she replied. However, in our daily clothing, we only wear a wrap to cover our reproductive core, and there is no sufficient structural integrity to support transport pouches. So, no. She did not inform him that the Shittar made the choice to avoid the stronger wraps for the explicit purpose of keeping the winged and tusk from asking for transport. Pointing out his species' general rudeness wasn't something to do when a patient was obviously emotionally depressed. You probably wouldn't understand then, the winged said, rolling over on his back with another sigh. Are you emotionally distressed, 43 Drills? she asked. It was obvious that he was, but she had felt that illustrating her own ignorance was usually the best way to get an alien talking about a sensitive subject. Her wing's stiffness, he admitted, as he began to gloomily groom his sensory horns. Would you like to inform me as to the reason? Fifth sister asked. I think one of the humans is angry with me, 43 Trill said. What do you base this observation on? She asked. Was the human behaving aggressively towards you? Oh, the wind went on in a sad tone. He uh, just blocked me. The shittah was confused and covered it by flicking her dabber out to clean her eyes quickly. He prevented you from accessing his non-emergency communications account, she asked. No, the wind went on. He physically blocked me. The shittah strained to bring the lights together. I do not understand, she said. The wing gave her a long, drawn-out sigh that expanded him to nearly half again his size and flopped over a few times to arrange his wings. Over the course of the past few weeks, he has been filling his pelvic transport pouches with various small items, the wing explained. It was interesting at first, then it was awkward. Today it reached a point that I could no longer fit inside with all the collected items. It's fairly clear that he is upset with me for something I've done to offend him. The wind suddenly leapt up and began dancing around the room, chittering in distress. The shittah watched him with concern for a time, tilting her triangular head from side to side to keep him in a field of vision. Meanwhile, she had her fingers busily with the data pad, pulling up one of the psychological files of the humans that she recalled from her training. When he had burned off enough of his distress, he fluttered back to the shelf. I just wish I knew what I'd done to offend him, he said with a tired little chirp. You know how important social presence is to us winged, and with only a wing's worth of the base, and none of us from the same flight. Human transport pouches are just about the closest thing we home we have. Are you quite certain that this behavior has anything to do with you and your behavior, she asked. What else could it be? The wing demanded. Nothing has changed in the base environment to alter his behavior. Say that he has been the only human on the base for some time since the geological expedition left for the Northern Hemisphere, said Fitz's sister. Perhaps this might be a symptom of hoarding instincts activating due to stress isolation. I've heard of such things. Do you think? The wing asked, poking up immediately. 
I think it would be best if we opened a line of communication directly with him, Fifth Sister stated firmly. However, I have heard of this process of slowly filling your pockets with accumulation of interesting objects you find during the day. It appears to be a collection of shiny things, 43 Trills observed. It is mostly broken bolts and scraps of reflective covers. Humans do have an odd affinity for shiny things. That is common in species that depend on open water for hydration, she affirmed. However, my literature suggests that such a manifestation of this was limited to children. If it is the same response, it seems to be inadvertent and might respond to a simple question. 43 Trolls nodded slowly, even as his kinetics became more energetic as his mood rode. I will ask him, he said. Thank you for your analysis, but sister. She flicked a frill in acknowledgement and resumed sorting the additives as the winged left the room. She did not choose to share the information with the winged, but the reversion to childhood behaviors was often a sign of stress. She wondered if the human required the medically recommended application of snuggles and who on base would be the best to provide them. End of story. Story number two. No longer the limit. Written by Fluffy Fireman. I've heard these lies before. You mortals have lied before and spun trickery finer than spider silk. Why would I trust you once more? Humanity smiled at his challenge. A final test before the trial ahead. One last thing to conquer. The first man lied to survive. Their descendants lied to progress. Our ancestors lied for profit. And we've all lied to gain. But fear not, this is not a lie. Humanity began, the soul of determination, of progress, of innovation burning in the immortal's own being. We've claimed land for our use, a firm and steady hand bending the very earth to our use. A hand muddy and callous swept over the farms. We tamed our beasts, befriending, herding, and even protecting a second hand gestured to the loyal canines, led by Leash. We have even bent the will of our kind. A nod of acknowledgement, lips formed in a grimace, teeth stained with red. Great Mother Earth has been claimed, our Earth supporting our growth, tamed so we might prosper. We have scaled the mountains to the north, crossed the rivers to the east, and delved into the deepest depths to the west and walked the plains to the south. The collective of humanity now stood together, hands clasped in solidarity. The Grand Titan, Titan of endurance and astronomy, the Great Atlas looked upon the sacred place, and nodded. For as long as these young mortals knew, he held the sky behind their grasp, like a father placing sweets just out of reach of a child. Now grown, developed, and yearning, these mere children asked for the sky itself. You wish, the titan began, shoulders old and worn, the stars above a heavy weight upon an aged being, to hold the sky, to be its foundation so that it may rest upon you. The human smiled at the grizzled being, how young he now seemed before they spoke. We do not wish to hold the sky up in our own grasp. Instead, 
We shall take your burden, old friend. We shall take your burden and lower it to the earth itself and move upwards to grasp the stars and tame them. Atlas knew much of the stars overhead, but never had he thought to reach out and touch them. And so he lowered his burden from his tired body, settling it down upon the curious palms of humanity, and watched as they brought it close, rather than hold it away from themselves. Humanity embraced the unknown. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 921. Story number one. Peace, War, Hell. Written by Ogosh. I have been head tactician of the United Federation of Species for 72 cycles. Before that, I was apprenticed to the previous head for 119 cycles. I've conquered worlds, turned tides, and bolstered the morale of millions. But in this moment, I've never felt greater shame or disgust in myself, because I have made an inexcusable tactical error. I commanded the humans to win our war. We found the humans' homeworlds 19 cycles into our war with the Coalition. We were at a standstill, so we expanded outwards in other directions, seeking resource-rich planets and, uh, hopefully, lesser races to conscript. We gave the humans weapons, ships, eventually entire fleets, and told them to end this war. I personally instructed the human generals by any means. Oh, gods. I've sealed my fate with those three words. In two cycles, our retreating lines had halted. One cycle after that, we began to retake entire systems. Half a cycle after that, our enemy had lost all morale, and the high command was reading. Now, two microcycles later, I stand in the dimly lit conference room with our head diplomat, the presidential envoy, my apprentice, and to my left the human tactician responsible for the Galilee 6 incident. Every eye in the room watched it from the periphery as it calmly organized several sheets of white material with human writing printed on them, awaiting the comm link with the coalition high command. From behind me, I felt my apprentice's eyes staring at the back of my head. I feel his embarrassment. His shame is mine, too. The large screen in front of us bloomed and the coalition leaders came into view. Twelve impeccably dressed bureaucrats and military leaders stood in varying states of anger and unrest as Prime Ministers leered back at us. I could see from the preview screen that only our president, one of his generals, and half of myself were being broadcast to them. Varshi, the Prime Minister growled with a sudden contempt. What in the hell have you been doing? President Varshi stood motionless behind his podium. He had prepared to take responsibility and responded as evenly as he could. Prime Minister Akoku, I have asked this meeting so that we may come to an accord of indefinite ceasefire, while terms of peace can be negotiated. You want to talk about peace after the atrocities you've committed? Sir, our actions in this conflict have not broken any laws of engagement established by... And what about laws of morality? The Prime Minister was frothing, 
explosives hidden in the ground beneath abandoned fronts, incendiary weapons, the wanton destruction of fertile farmland, hacking into prime world media hubs and broadcasting lies about the coalition, the murdering of high officials light years away from fronts. I glanced over at the human who was staring disinterestedly at the screen with its arms crossed in front of it. I'd spoken to it about these tactics. It had a word for each of them. Landmines, napalm, scorched earth, propaganda. And, worst of all, assassination. What a terrible word. There may be no laws to prevent such actions, the Prime Minister continued, but we both know damn well it's because no one thought a respectable military leader would stoop so low as to utilize them. He was right, of course. What we let the humans do was monstrous. Prime Minister, President Varshi tried to calm him. The sooner we return to the negotiation table, the sooner... You have no honor, Varshi. Your entire Federation are honorless fools winning war through murder and atrocity. There was a blur of motion to my left. The human crossed in front of me with a dazzling speed and pushed the president aside with one hand. The president kept from falling by grabbing onto the jacket of the chief of staff and stared back in disbelief at the human that assaulted him, but no one made a move to detain it. The human glared back at the prime minister with a look of fury on his face, fury that dwarfed the minister's. Despite the initial shock, the Akoko showed no signs of backing down, who are you? I am the one responsible for your defeated Galilee 6 and every other loss you'll suffer for the past cycle. The Prime Minister's eyes widened as he realized what the creature he was arguing with was capable of. Let me tell you something about honor, you bureaucratic piece of crap. Honor doesn't end wars. Honor doesn't make war better or nicer. More is war, and it'll always be hell. Honor didn't stop our cannons when your generals led your fleets into yet another ambush. Honor didn't stop your fields from burning and let your food supply for six systems run dangerously low. Right now, we're besieging more than a dozen coalition worlds with perfect blockades around the planets. No one can leave. Nothing can get in we bombard their defenses hourly. We estimate the first world will run out of food in half a cycle without aid. How long do you think it'll be after that when they learn they can't eat honor? The silence hung in the air like a deuce. Everyone stepped away from the monster called human. The Prime Minister did everything in his power to keep from staggering back. Your tactics have killed millions the Prime Minister. As I understand it, shot back the human, your war has been at a stalemate for 13 cycles. How many millions have died in that time? How many billions more will have died if we hadn't tipped the scales? The Prime Minister stunk. Except the ceasefire today, the human continued calmer, and you'll be saving all of those lives. Decline and we continue to show you how humans go to war. The Prime Minister was very visibly shaken, as was our President and everyone else. You're mad, 
The Prime Minister shuddered. Perhaps the human's voice was now completely still. If its rage was disquieting, its calm was all but terrifying. But by our estimates, our fleets will reach the Coalition Prime Worlds in less than half a cycle. Make peace, or I'll personally do to your home world what I did to Galilee 6, and drop a fecking moon on your front door. The human turned and walked past me to collect these things as the president cautiously stood back up at the podium. By the gods, I spoke in hushed dread. What have I unleashed upon the galaxy? I jumped as the human placed a hand on my shoulder and looked up at me with half a smile. Peace! End of story. Story number two. Negotiations. Written by Glitchkey. Before we begin, I want to be sure of a few things. This device you provided us with, it is 100% effective at understanding and translating languages, correct? Nearly. We occasionally find a race with one or two concepts that it has trouble with, but that's easily smoothed over. One or two? Okay, that's odd. They've already found something it can't translate. Um... Sort of, yes. Mind humoring me for a few minutes? Certainly. After all, it can take years to accept a race into the Federation. Excellent. This shouldn't take too much time. I mentioned that we found some issues with your device. Allow me to demonstrate. Espionage. Error, no analog found. Reverse engineering. Error, no analog found. Spycraft. Error, no analog found. Overwhelming force, error, no. Scorched earth, error. Kamikaze, error. Blitzkrieg, stealth, mutually assured destruction, acceptable losses, pyric victory, guerrilla warfare, encirclement, entrenchment, siege. Too many errors detected, rebooting, running self-diagnostic. No discrepancies found. Xenocide. Why do you have a word for? What was all of that just now? We were confused about that too, so we took a look at the information you sent us as part of first contact with us. We noticed something interesting. Every single race in your federation is carnivorous. Why is that? First contact has always been made after sapient races make it to multiple worlds. We have never found a sapient herbivorous race which failed to destroy themselves in resource walls and aggressive action. We've never found herbivores capable of surviving long enough to leave their own world. And the race you have found, while commonly using threat displays, do not waste resources and wars they cannot easily win, correct? Wasted resources means decreased likelihood of survival. And yet herbivores constantly waste resources on aggression and movement on having more young than will possibly survive. And they die for it. That is exactly why we've never encountered a space-bearing herbivores. Their inherent aggression is their own demise. Indeed, uh, now back to the subject at hand. I'll ask you before we continue. What can you offer humans for joining your federation? We've already sent an offer. You've seen that, I'm sure. And I'm asking, what else do you have to offer? Nothing. I'm not sure why you're... May I have permission to connect my datapad with the ship's computers? Yes, if you like. Computer, show video Hiroshima. 
That's, um, uh, you're using weapons of that scale on a population center. How recent was this? Three centuries ago, prior to our invention of spaceflight, part of a much larger conflict, this is a relatively minor example of uh, overwhelming false error. No, uh, shattered computer. Now in Fushi Battle of Stalingrad. That, uh, what purpose would that? Why, why, um... Because Stalingrad was an advantageous location, and the people who died there were considered acceptable losses. Era, computer, show the gallery General Sherman's march to the sea. So much waste. That can't be intentional, can it? It was intentional. But why? Because it rendered the enemy unable to use resources Sherman couldn't keep. Computer, assemble and show video grouping RTS games. The translator can't have gotten that right. Those are military tactical simulations, higher level than anything I've ever seen or heard of. No, they aren't. Those are games, toys, for fun. And they're a couple hundred years out of date. From what I've seen, nearly every human capable of coherent speech is capable of tactically overwhelming your federation. And since we're already here, in space, it's too late for you to say no. So I'll ask again, what do you have to offer us? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 922 Humanity Fearless Written by Clock Tower Echoes There are four species counted amongst the war chamber of the Greater Galactic Council. The mass of Cthund, Titan-like in size, each individual Cthund capable of carrying a tank's worth of weaponry and armor into battle alone. The predatory Tragnar, apex warriors and masters of the hunt who could track a scent for miles and lunge at their prey with a brutal fury and savage efficiency. The scholarly Dalnaga, religious engineers who develop weapons of such potency and the greatest of their creations could shatter the stars themselves had they not been bound by their faith. And then there are humans who are none of those things. They are not the strongest, nor the quickest, nor the smartest, nor the toughest, nor the most numerically vast. A single Cthund could comfortably take on a platoon of Terran Union soldiers, a company of them capable of fighting a Terran tank brigade to a standstill. Tracknar war packs practically hunted freely on isolated human outposts, or fun during their war with humanity, stalking from the shadows and lunging at them with rending claws. And while they never fought the Dalnaga, reports from observers invited by the Dalnaga themselves claim to have witnessed an arsenal that made nuclear weapons, once so feared by the governments of Old Earth, look like hand grenades. So why does humanity stand amongst these martial superpowers of the galaxy, you may ask? Many drunken, nationalistic ramblers and confused casual observers have asked the same. It is for one simple reason. Humans are the only species who can fight the monsters the other three cannot. Space is vast and dark, holding as many wonders as it does horrors. When the black fleets of the Zark came screaming out to the sunless void of darkness, they brought them primordial horrors, manifestations of terrifying unreality, 
and momentous of faith so eldritch it could only be described as madness. These monsters sent psychic shockwaves, crippling the minds of those who felt it with a crushing realization of existential dread. The pride all species held in their ability to have conquered their homeworlds and expanded across the stars brought down with the terrifying realization of how insignificant they were cosmologically. And where these god avatars walked, hordes of twisted, wretched, demonic abominations and feral fanatics followed. The Cthulhu were crushed like ants. Their large bodies used as empty husks were the most degenerate of the Zark Bio creations that stalked battlefields like distant, shambling statues forced into torturous unlife. Dragnar hid in holes which soon became their graves, their hunting prowess meaning nothing against a foe that hunted them back with such a ruthless efficiency that just to sight one could stun a whole war pack as they remembered a time when their pre-sentient ancestors were still hunted by other predators. And the Zark had subverted the little Naga's weapons by attacking their controllers directly, crippling them with infectious nightmares of powerlessness and the realization that their gods had no power to protect them before harvesting their brains and knowledge for ever more sinister inventions. The council was in disarray. The many hundreds of species and thousands of planets were thrown into chaos at the onset of a foe who fed off the heights of their pride, only to cast them down into the deepest pits of despair. No one in their entire history of sapient civilization had ever conceived of such a threat, one that showed how futile their struggles were and how insignificant their creations would be. All except for one. When humans first breached the barrier of FTL, they were seen as the humblest of all races. By comparison to other species, their ships and cities lacked the huge monuments common across other planets. Boasting and bragging was seen as rude in their curious culture, and despite making it past the Great Filter, they kept showing themselves as the underdogs in their stories. Many governments thought it to be some kind of defeatist self-propaganda of a pacifist race, a notion only dispelled after the violence of human history was known at the Terran Union, brought the Trugna to a standstill in a war over colonization rights. However much respect they gained, though, was never enough to outweigh the conception that they were meek, cowardly creatures, a young race who didn't believe in its own abilities enough to reject them. The lack of hubris, as the humans saw it, did not come from a place of weakness, however, but from a place of understanding. An understanding that as far as they had come, they'd still had much to learn, and that for as much as they had to learn, the galaxy they lived in was barely a speck on the scale of the universe. Whereas the media of the other races showed them standing tall, fearless and triumphant over adversary and hardship, Human media showed humans who failed to do so, overcome by villain or greater force. Even in the situations where humans wonder, their path was seldom easy or smooth. To them, a 95% chance of failure was uncertain doom, 
but a 5% chance of success. Uniquely amongst human media as well, they had developed the concept of existential horror, a concept utterly alien to other races of the council. They even had a word for it that could never be properly translated. Lovecraftian. What could exist that could make existence itself seem meaningless? This arc proved they could. The avatars brought on fears so ancient, so primal, that all could feel the times their ancestors were still afraid of thunder and the dark beyond a meager campfires. The Cthund, the Trachnar, the Dal Naga, they were all new to this feeling of fear embedded in their very DNA of life itself. But humans weren't. Across a thousand worlds and for nearly twenty-seven long, bloody years, the sons and daughters of Earth fought hopeless battles and desperate, lost stands. Often, they were the last line of defense, all sacrificial rearguard, not out of choice, but because all other forces had fled battle. Great armies were raised from humanity's many planets, colonies, and nations, her people throwing themselves into the gullets of the thirsting monsters and the maws of the laughing gods, all to buy time, to hold the line. The 93rd King's Guard Infantry held a thin red line of the makeshift defenses on the Cthulhu world of Utgrad, refusing to retreat, even as they were overrun by the hordes of the Zrak who torn into them. Vavalek, an invaluable industrial world, held for three years against the siege due to the heroic defense of the 133rd Vegetercia Infantry and the 22nd Watchtech Armored, using half-finished tanks by the end of the siege as they were overrun. The Dragnar forever remember the 52nd Zulu Legion when they came to the aid of their desperate homeworld. It was the 86th Ulamara and the 106th Lucky Drongos who were the first into the breach during the failed counterattack on the Zark Fortress on the world of Yalopiat. The 71st Shujian, the 77th Chazavoy, and the 101st Screaming Eagles, and 166 Hei Hangfu, all fought, bled, and died in an apocalyptic battle of the Dalnaga Archive World of Iliad VI. And when the 201st Agonis Starfighter Corps discovered a Zark Voidforge, they rammed their fighters straight into it once their ammo ran dry desperately, preventing a creation of another Cthulhu-like god avatar. As each man and woman died, they did so with a fury and vengeance unseen by the wider galaxy on their lips, their souls burning like beacons against the endless darkness. It was humanity, bleeding and battered as it was, who led the armada that crushed the last bastion of the Zark. Zark Prime. At the helm was the battleship Sola, the greatest naval vessel ever built. Five miles long with Cthund armor, Tragnar sensor arrays, and Dalnaga guns. Battleship Sola led a combined force of over two dozen species to the very gates of hell itself, where the Zark kept the most terrible god avatars. With each pass of the ethereal weapons, ships weren't just destroyed but erased from reality itself. 
Some fled, others retreated to maximum weapon range. Only the ships of the Terran Navy dared to get close, to stare the abyss in the eye, and dare it to blink. And as they detonated the human Dalnaga hybrid bomb above the Zahak's world, the abyss blinked. Humanity is not the strongest, nor the quickest, nor the smartest, nor the strongest, nor the most numerically advanced. But they don't have to be. They never saw themselves based on what they did, but what they could do. Where everyone else had seen near certain defeat and damnation, humans bet everything on the tiniest of chances for victory. Gambling against hope and forgotten gods on an underdog victory. It had been humans, the cowards, who sacrificed untold millions on planets not their own. It had been humans, the unassuming, who led the galactic armada to the Zark Prime. It had been humans, the prideless, who continued to hunt the remaining god avatars and monsters left over from the Zark to this day. It had been the humans, the humble, who had cancelled the apocalypse. It is humans, the fearless, who stand as the galaxy's monster hunters. When some new horror or monster rises out of the abyss of space, or an old one dares to reveal its hated head, it is humanity who the Gathun, the Tragna, and the Dalnaga turn to. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 923 One bad joke deserves another. Written by Al Spawner I really hate humans, you know that. The Walteran trader puffed lightly on a cigarette, the smoke wafting around the interview room. Everything they make is either profoundly addictive or deadly or both. The union interviewer was not amused. He was cloaked in shadow behind an obfuscation screen, and Jalong couldn't even make out what species he was, or even if he was a he. Whoever he was, he spoke decent Waltaran. We didn't bring you here to talk about Terran tobacco, trader. We want an account of what happened to start the war, and your part in it. This is serious. Geelong took a long drag on the sick and put it out in the provided ashtray. Fine, fine. What do you want to know? From the beginning, don't leave anything out. We'll know if you're lying. The gentle humming of the bioscanner gave testament to that particular threat. Bioscanners didn't work on all sentience, but they worked well enough on Waltarans. Well, uh, the beginning predates all of us, you know. Uh, I don't have all the details, mind you, but I do know the humans had plenty of reasons to attack the Tkra, some of them going back 10,000 cycles or more. The interviewer said nothing and Jalon took that as an invitation to continue. Everybody knows that Jakral are arrogant pranksters. They love stirring up primitive civilizations for their own amusement. It's their thing. Occasionally, they even play a joke on the more advanced races. Now that has bit them in the waste reclamation sack more than once. Jalon leaned forward a bit and couldn't get a better view of the shadowy unionist. Anyhow, the Chakra found Earth a long time ago. 
They were barely ascended from apes in those days. It's not even clear if they had spoken language then. Certainly, they didn't even have the written language. All the humans would hate the Chakra even more. Nahana Record High, uh, liberated from a forensic data archaeologist on Ikram, provided irrefutable proof of this. Are you sure that it's genuine? The interviewer asked. As sure as can be, it was from an ancient crashed Chakra vessel, littered with half-fossilized human remains on board. Proof that they were fecking around seems legitimate to me. Jalong pulled out another sick and casually lit it. So I get a call from the Cassities. You know, Cassities, always digging for information. They just can't accept that there is anything in the universe that they might not know. Anyway, they wanted to buy the data cube from the crash, and they weren't taking no for an answer. They offered to pay off my loan on the ship if I gave it to them. The interviewer interrupted him. Yet didn't bother them that it was stolen. The Cassities have a reputation for honesty. Of course they didn't care. You've got to understand, Cassities. They worship truth. They would rather die than lie, or even withhold information. Because each one of them spends his whole life trying to acquire as much information as possible. Lying gets in the way of that. But it isn't that they're entirely honest, either. They had no problem buying stolen goods from me, so long as I was truthful about stealing them. Interesting. Go on. Jalon pulled out a flask of Terran whiskey and took a long pull from it. It was another Terran substance that could probably kill you, but was as addictive and ubiquitous in the sector. Want to pull? He held the flask up, wondering if the interviewer would reveal himself for the treat. No. The Cassities bought your data cube. What happened after that? Jalon shrugged. A gesture that had rubbed off of him from too much trading with the humans. They bought it, and being the information fetishists that they are, they freely shared the decryption of it with me. Weird people, the Cassities. He continued. So, the cube contained the record of the Shukra on Earth, something like 10,000 cycles ago. They were posing as gods, something the Shukra found endlessly funny. It's a prank they played on thousands of primitive worlds. The Hollow showed a bunch of tribal humans doing silly little rain dances in the nude that the Chakra said would summon their aid and bring the rain. Naturally, they had a weather enhancement satellite in orbit to produce the requisite rain, an awfully expensive toy to waste on a joke. So the human contorted himself wildly according to their desires. And the Chakra laughed with amusement at that. There were hundreds more records like this, but that's the one that always sticks out in the memory for some reason. So, the Cassities had the cube. What did they do with it? The interviewer asked, impatience creeping into his voice. Well, you know, Cassities, they wanted to share their newfound knowledge with the universe. Fecking lunatics. You know... Just for once, they could have just shut their breathing orifices and sat on something. They called the humans the fools. But to top off their stupidity, they also called the Chakra and told them that they were telling the humans. The unionist interviewer leaned forward with interest, nearly breaching the obfuscation screen, and Jalan was almost able to make out his feature. 
The Chakra probably didn't like that. No, they didn't. Turns out when the humans first encountered the Chakra in space, they instinctively hated them. Nobody knew why. Oh, the Chakra rub everyone the wrong way sooner or later. But the humans hadn't even been the butt of a joke yet. At least so far as anyone knew. But there it was. The humans hated the Chakra. Turns out the Chakra knew the reason right away. For centuries, they played their guard pranks on the humans, coming back periodically to stir things up. Once, they convinced a batch of humans to launch a holy war in their name, killing thousands. They would convince humans to build great monuments to them, then tear them all down and start over. The Chakra laughed about this for a very long time. Another time, they convinced the humans that they had to mate with beasts in order to please the whims of the gods. That went over about just as badly. But something odd happened. I can't be sure, because the records were muddled, but I think the ancient humans figured out the Chakar were putting their leg. All I know for sure is that the humans suddenly rose up and killed the gods in vast numbers. That's uh, humans for you. The Chakra, understanding that the joke had worn out his welcome, backed up and left. Thousands of years later, the humans still hated them. I think it might be a cultural memory, or something in their genes. Hard to say. The Chakra, for their part, stayed very, very far away from humanity. The interviewer leaned back again. So, the Chakra remembered. Are you kidding? They sometimes forget a good joke. But they never forget a bad one. So when they got a call from the Cassites that the data cube was going to be turned over to the humans, they panicked. Everybody knows the humans are more warlike and less tolerant than most. Humans were not a species you wanted to pick a fight with. Jalom puffed on his cigarette nervously, for he was coming up on the part of the tale that most unnerved him. The Chukar decided on what has to be the dumbest reaction to a problem I've ever heard of. They sent warships to attack the Cassettes before they could turn over the cube to the humans. Only being the idiots that they are, they arrived late. The Cassettes had just turned over the cube when the Chukra battlecruiser showed up over Cass Prime. Even then, maybe an interstellar war could have been avoided. If the Trakar Admiralty hadn't seen fit to assign a mental half-foot to the Sector Command, probably because someone thought to get a good laugh out of it. This definitely piqued the interest of the Unionist. You were there when the exchange took place? Yes, I was waiting in low orbit for my payment scripts. Saw everything. And I never did get paid. Feck it all. Good, the Unionist said. Now, be very, very careful here. These proceedings will be forwarded to the Waltaran government, and you're already on the book for data theft. It was a rehearsed line, and Jalam detected the interviewer's reluctance. Clearly, they'd rather toss him out of an airlock and be done with him. But there were legal forms to be followed in the Union. You had to have a better reason to do it, apparently. Thanks for caring. Jalam but back sarcastically, chewing on a cig. Look, when the Chakar commander saw that the humans already had the cube, he went insane. His orders were to stop the Cassites, presumably by intimidating them with a battlecruiser. 
His orders most certainly did not include starting an interstellar war by attacking a human civilian transport. But that's what he did anyway. I tell you to ask the Gazettis, but he blew up their ship too. I got away because the plaster gunners couldn't hit anything smaller than a city block. Big transports were easy. Little gnats like myself have a bit of an advantage. There was silence for a while as the interviewer stepped up from his chair, and another came to whisper to him. The bioscanner continued to thrum behind him, and he felt a moment of worry. Malfunctions were rare, but they did happen. Seems you are telling the truth, trader. The interviewer added as the assistant walked away. Fortunately for you, for if you were not, it is union policy to, uh, terminate unproductive assets. Jialam tried not to show his fear. The union did not make idle threats. The humans got off a transmission with the most of the data in the cube before the ship was destroyed. It was pretty sad, actually. I'm told there was a transport liner with families on board and everything. They didn't realize the Gazettis were roping them into an intergalactic incident. Predictably, the humans went insane. The combination of murder of thousands of innocents and the revelation that the Chukar had manipulated their species for thousands of years in the past was too much for them. They didn't waste time with the outer worlds. They went for the Chukar homeworld itself with a stupendous fleet. Wait, how did you know that? The interviewer asked. Oh, um, well, the humans caught me a few systems down the line in Kess Prime. The liner got a nice pretty picture of my ship before exploding. They interrogated me and were somewhat less pleasant than you've been about it. But my only crime was ripping off a bunch of data archaeologists, and they soon figured that out. So I was there when the fleet materialized over the Chakra homeworld. So what did the humans do. Jalom laughed for the first time. They played a little joke on the Chakar. Their general, or admiral, or whoever he was, blasted the sector fleet out of existence and demanded the surrender of the planet, which was promptly given. The High King then tried to reassure the humans that it was just a joke, and why couldn't the humans have a sense of humor about these things? The interviewer sighed briefly. How badly did the humans beat them? Well, their leader went down to the halls of kings, even letting me tag along with his entourage, for he wanted a non-human witness to the deed. And in front of the entire Chakra conclave, he unzipped his pants and took a piss on the throne, laughing the whole time. He asked the Chakra if they thought the joke was funny. Naturally, they did not. And then he took the High King, the one who'd ordered these idiot sector commander to attack, and had him thrown off the palace tower to his death. Then he asked the Conclave if they thought that was funny. They didn't. It took three members of the Conclave following their High King off the tower before they figured it out. Yes, they finally said with a forced laugh. That was very funny. And then, Jalom said, Unable to resist a smirk at the memory, the general told the surviving conclave members a line I will never forget for the rest of my life. We're humans. We do have a sense of humor. We think it's funny to kill our gods and piss on their thrones. 
I have a feeling the worst casualty of this whole affair will be the Chakra's sense of humor. The interviewer pulled down a shadowy obfuscation screen, and Jalam saw him for the first time. He was a human, not a unionist. The human smile was mirthy and warm, but Jalam nearly choked at his cigarette. Um, sorry about earlier. The human smile grew. Sorry about what? I don't really hate humans. Really, I don't. I was just making a, a joke or... Well, not a joke, just a, um... Jalam fumbled for a response. Don't worry, kid. The interviewer stood up and tossed him a fresh pack of cigarettes. Unleashing cancer sticks on the universe actually is a joke we find funny. But thanks for confirming the general story. We might have court-martialed him, but now it looks like we'll have to promote him. I don't see how he's going to top pissing on the throne of a god, though. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 924. Story number one. They Ate Us, written by Demoth the Tomb. The Galactic Central Union had been around for longer than most of its member species kept historical records. As such, its early history and even founding have remained a mystery. And yet, as far back as every species' records do go, there has always been stories of the Devourers. The Devourers are said to be towering bipedal beasts with a hunger for all for which could be eaten, which to them was everything. Parents would tell their children that the Devourers would eat them up if they didn't behave or go to bed on time. Despite these things just being stories used by parents to get the young to behave, it has always remained in question how or why these stories are the one thing to have been outliers to the otherwise strict cultural barrier between Union species throughout history. Of course, no one truly believed in the Devourers once they grew up. They are just another old boogeyman story, exaggerated every time it's told. Some historians joke that the original story of the Devourers might have been just some old men telling their grandkids about how much they ate during the harvest season. Nevertheless, others believe that every myth begins with some semblance of truth. Even in the modern age where FTL flight is common practice and the Union border stretches further than ever before, there are those who are superstitious. My people, the Galat, have too had the Devourer stories deeply rooted in our past. However, as a small quadrupedal species with no defense but a small hide and curled horns, we made up for our lack of strength with our intellect and became the leading governmental species in the Union. With this pride to uphold, we no longer teach our children such fictional stories. One then can imagine my surprise to our ambassador. A distant communication had been detected. An audio first contact had been made with a new species from the outer galactic arms, who called themselves Humans. Eager to engage in first new contact since the founding of the Union, an envoy ship, my ship, was deployed immediately. The Humans had agreed to send their own envoy ship and meet halfway between our two territories. My dispatch ship was small, designed to glide with the waves of space, truly a vessel made for speed. As a result, my ship had arrived early, though I did not need to wait long. Arriving slightly early themselves as well, Humans' ship burst into the scene. 
and when I say that, I mean literally. Unlike our ships, which get their speed by smoothly gliding through FTL space, the human ship was massive dark brick of harsh geometric shapes and sharp edges, which seemed to force its way through space with absolute brute strength alone. I had expected their fastest envoy ship to be small and elegant like mine, but what I saw instead probably could have qualified as a city in space. Along its side, painted in mile-high letters of the human's language, the ship's insignia read ITCSS Ulthras. My visual translator informed me that the acronym and name meant Imperial Terran City Starship. The name Ulthras came from a mystical creature which ate the human sun and moon. Immediately, I'm skeptical of the human's cognitive ability. Not just is that an extremely strange name for a ship, but it's based on a clearly impossible story. Not even to mention the fact that this ship is clearly an inefficient design in FTL, and they send a city ship of civilians to a first contact situation. Nevertheless, I'd come this far, and the fact that they can build ships like that in the first place is an impressive show of their industrial might. After a short radio communication with the apparent captain and ambassador, I docked with the human ship. I walked into the docking ring and waited for the airlock to open so that I would finally meet the new people. But when the doors opened, I froze up and nearly fell over. What greeted me was not like anything in the Union. The humans were a tall species, to the point I only reached up to the waist at most. And the legs, only two! An upright bipedal race with a pair of two forward-facing eyes meant for hunting. I tried to calm myself down. Admittedly, I was probably far too nervous for my pay grade. After all, in the Union, carnivorous and omnivorous species are not uncommon. I think the sheer shock of their bipedalism and how they showed their teeth in a smile while peering down at me just made me uncomfortable. Surprisingly, after my embarrassing freeze-up at the beginning, first contact was going well. Once the humans realized that I was too small to keep up with their stride, they kindly decided to carry me for the tour. Yet, my mind was sent into chaos, not by this embarrassing situation, but by what came next. After the tour, I was brought into the dining hall for what the humans called a celebratory feast, to celebrate the successful first contact. I had brought my own rations from my ship to this feast, knowing that I wouldn't be eating any of their dishes, which turned out to be a wide mix of meats and greens. Yet, something was off. Something that these humans seemed familiar in my mind. But from where? I racked my mind, trying to remember where these seemed vaguely familiar from. And then it hit me. The devourers! Towering bipedals who would eat anything and everything. I'm not one to jump to conclusions. However, I had already reached my limit of being able to ignore the stress. Were the humans the devourers from myths? Had they come to our sector of space and interacted with our ancestors? If that is the case, then what did the humans do that made every other race demonize them? These and many more pointless speculations raced through my mind until I could take no more and just outright asked, Have your people ever been in our sector of space before and met our kind? This time the captain froze. 
He placed down his cutlery and turned to face me with those piercing, forward-facing eyes. Yes, he said. We have been to your sector before, but back then it was ours. This answered one question that opened the floodgate of more questions, all of which would get me nowhere. So I simply asked him to explain. In response, he made a claim which I could not comprehend. Every last one of you originated on one planet in your union. I don't know what you call it, but it's our planet. Earth. I froze up again. This time, I fell off the chair and onto the floor. From above, I heard the captain sigh and mumble. The old zoology books did say that goats freeze up when anxious. End of story. Story number two. Humans are old. Written by Origami. It had been quite a few years since the last time a human had visited our town, and a precarious uproar ensued, as always. From the eldest to the freshest of pups, every one of us wished to meet the human, to speak with him, to be spoken to, and to bask in the light for even a moment. Humans live five as many lifetimes as the rest of us. Indeed, a great-grandson may live to see the end of a human that his great-grandfather had known since birth. They never forgot the friendship we had, bringing us to the table, teaching us and preparing us for sentience as they uplifted us, protecting us from harm as we had always strived to do for them, even unto death. They cherish us like children, and even the oldest of us cannot help but feel childlike in their embrace. Even now, though by human standards we are about the same age, the young human who sits calmly amongst my peers seems more divine than one could imagine. Though they drilled us into not falling into the train of thought, they were not divine, and just like us. They too perished with the passing of time. There were fewer humans now. They had long since gone, leaving behind only a fragment of their passing. Shepherds and protectors to see us on our way, to follow them when we were ready. The swift tail of a small pup smacked dully against the human who was seated with a young girl in his lap. She squirmed in excitement as he laughed ever boisterously as he attempted to calm her down with an affectionate petting. Her excitement seemed to blossom. And so, unfortunately, the pup's mother had to extract the young one from the human's lap, lest he be set upon by a playful puppy. How long will you be with us, master? spoke an elder hound, his great big ears folded over his eyes, his hands gripping upon a cane as he shakily stood in attendance. The human gazed upon his figure and a small sign of sadness filled his eyes at the visage of the elder. The young man stood, towering over the canines of varying breeds, all who watched him attentively. He gently reached out to the elder, who perked up and whose tail began drifting in the wind. As long as you need me, old friend, he said, his voice quiet but easy for any canine to hear. The young man leaned forward, placing a kiss atop the elder's brow. As long as you need me, he reassured. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 925 Every cell in my brain is in excruciating pain 
and I will never transport humans again. Disgusting apes. They're worst, most terrible customers that you can imagine. Every time I encounter one, I am faced with a near irresistible desire to tear my appendages from my head. In all my time, captaining and ferrying creatures around the galaxy, and never once have I seen a species so mind-numbingly frustrating as these. I thought this was great for business. I took a look at the documents, including a biological overview, and saw nothing immediately worrying. And besides, it would be interesting to be around a new species for a little bit. I love them on board, and that was a mistake. Immediately after they were allowed on board, I had second thoughts. By no means were they the most massive sapien species, but they were absolutely the tallest. The structure containing their sensory organs and brain was almost always in jeopardy of impacting low-hanging door frames, pipes, and miscellaneous objects. This was mediated by their bony cranium, which was suspiciously well adapting to resisting blunt force trauma. They moved with an unnatural grace on their unreasonably long legs, propelled by bands of alien muscle strung to calcified endoskeleton. Their chattering was so fast, the auto-translator spattered out a barely cohesive mess of jabber that barely registered as speech. The bio-overview stated that their brains worked much more rapidly than normal, necessitating a resting period lasting one-third of the circadian cycle to account for the waste buildup. But it was unnerving to see a person. There was something off about these creatures. I couldn't quite discern it, but their overview included details that I couldn't reconcile with their alleged desire for mutual betterment. And later that cycle, my suspicions were proven correct. One of the food management staff burst into the bridge, babbling hysterically about the humans in the mess hall. I arrived there to find a gaggle of humans, some clad in considerably less clothing than they had arrived in, and all of them surrounded by empty canisters of cooking fuel. I respectfully inquired as to what the name of the fuck they were doing, drinking all of the cooking fuel. I was simultaneously aghast at their seemingly suicidal tendencies and in awe of their ability to tolerate such improbable doses of literal poison. An ethanol-based fluid had been provided for them so they could heat their food, a courtesy I had trusted them with. I was under the impression that the heightened processing speed of their brains was an indicator of high intelligence and therefore a functioning self-preservation instinct. As it would turn out, their intelligence was only marginally above baseline. Their efficient brain simply allowed them to be stupid faster than any known species. As the humans assisted in stumbling back to their quarters, they were asked why they had consumed all the cooking fuel. They apparently mistook the clearly labeled canisters for beverages. When told that the labels marked the contents as highly flammable and poisonous, the humans simply stated that they um, couldn't read Galactic Basic and uh, didn't care and refused to elaborate further. 
Following the incident, I double-checked the bio-overview in order to gain an insight as to why they enjoyed poisoning themselves so much. As it would turn out, humans have a remarkable tolerance to most known toxins. They regularly poison themselves. It's a core component of the culture. And have taken down or synthesized a truly staggering number of substances for the sole purpose of disrupting the brain's and bodily functions. And their brain function was certainly disrupted. Not long after they'd been led back to their quarters to sleep off the super dose of poison they enthusiastically consumed, I had to deploy medical staff to one of their rooms. Apparently, two of their heavily inebriated males began engaging in physical combat over a dispute as to who got to sleep at the top bunk. Combat is not uncommon in most species, but this was different. They didn't do harmless wrestling like most species to establish dominance or something similar. They were violently percussing each other's faces with their upper limbs, spraying body fluids on the floor of each other. Instead of preventing them from beating each other to death, the other humans cheered on the one they liked the most while attempting to record the altercation on crude camera computers that they seemed to have at all times. Their strikes left visible dents in the walls and floor, hinting of a worrying amount of strength. One of the males hit a particularly hard under the mandible and collapsed to the ground. The victorious one, luckily, did not continue to beat his adversary to death, and instead allowed him to be carried to the medical bay. Before getting to the medical bay, the defeated human woke up, jumped out of the carrying cart that he'd been placed in, and refused medical attention, and attempted to find and consume more cooking fuel. He treated his wounds by rubbing his garments all over them, and returned to his quarters. After the rest period, they made up and were uh, friends again. Upon their return to the mess hall for breakfast, they all seemed to be in a state of great lethargy and irritability. They began dissolving a black powdered mixture into boiling water, which they had to ask for. They were not allowed to have any more cooking fuel. The resulting beverage was full enough of caffeine to kill every non-human passenger on the ship ten times over, and they consumed it anyways. Instead of engaging in recreational activities, as was expected from them, they returned to their quarters and continued resting well past the usual periods for hours. During this time, they consumed copious amounts of water and refused to speak to or cooperate with anyone except medical staff. They attempted to convince staff to give them drugs, claiming to have a condition called a, a hangover, despite there not being clear evidence of injuries, and their requests were denied to prevent any more intoxicated human incidents. The next cycle was still short of ideal. A concerned cleaning worker investigated crunts of exertion coming from the lavatory, fearing for the safety of its occupant. A medical worker was dispatched for assistance. Space food can cause gastrointestinal distress in some species. As it would turn out, it was not one human, but two. And there was no intestinal issues. 
the medical worker thought the humans were fighting and attempted to break them up. Both humans pushed the worker from the lavatory, closed and locked the door, and continued with what they were doing. As it turned out, they weren't fighting. They were mating. This event prompted staff to avoid isolated humans as much as possible, which was probably a mistake. Staff failed to discover the projectile launches a few humans had constructed from literal garbage in time to stop another incident from occurring. The humans used their ping-pong ball guns to engage in a mock fight with each other. There were seven staff casualties. When access to garbage was denied, the humans instead took to bludgeoning each other in sword fights with whatever long, sturdy objects they could find. It would appear that most of their recreational activities involve either abject violence or fierce competition, and they will weaponize anything given to them. Upon their departure, I still found traces of their peculiar behavior. They'd taken every complimentary bar of body-cleaning solvent and had deliberately left behind some currency in their rooms, perhaps as a form of pavement for the appropriated toiletries. This behavior has been noted and is consistent with the behaviors observed by other sapient species that had the misfortune of catering for these devilish creatures. For these reasons, I have indefinitely suspended any and all services to humans. If they want to travel through civilized space on my ship, they can, as they phrase it, kiss my ass. I don't care if they call me a speciest. It's not happening. I'll guarantee nobody would last a week with these monstrosities. Either let them use the godforsaken fabric of reality-tearing warp drives of death, or sell them some safe ones. I don't care how you do it, just don't let them on ships containing other species unless you want a dozen staff injuries because of a particularly aggressive game of... Uh, tennis. End of uh, chapter. Every cell in my brain is in excruciating pain, and I will never transport humans again. Written by Ostmeister Disgusting apes. Their worst, most terrible customers that you can imagine. Every time I encounter one, I am faced with a near-irresistible desire to tear my appendages from my head. In all my time, captaining and ferrying creatures around the galaxy, and never once have I seen a species so mind-numbingly frustrating as these. I thought this was great for business. I took a look at the documents, including a biological overview, and saw nothing immediately worrying. And besides, it would be interesting to be around a new species for a little bit. I love them on board, and that was a mistake. Immediately after they were allowed on board, I had second thoughts. By no means were they the most massive sapient species, but they were absolutely the tallest. The structure containing their sensory organs and brain was almost always in jeopardy of impacting low-hanging door frames, pipes, and miscellaneous objects. This was mediated by their bony cranium which was suspiciously well adapting to resisting blunt force trauma. They moved with an unnatural grace on their unreasonably long legs, propelled by bands of alien muscle strung to calcified endoskeleton. 
Their chattering was so fast, the auto translator spattered out a barely cohesive mess of jabber that barely registered a speech. The bio-overview stated that the brains worked much more rapidly than normal, necessitating a resting period lasting one-third of the circadian cycle to account for the waste buildup. But it was unnerving to see a person. There was something off about these creatures. I couldn't quite discern it, but their overview included details that I couldn't reconcile with their alleged desire for mutual betterment. And later that cycle, my suspicions were proven correct. One of the food management staff burst into the bridge, babbling hysterically about the humans in the mess hall. I arrived there to find a gaggle of humans, some clad in considerably less clothing than they had arrived in, and all of them surrounded by empty canisters of cooking fuel. I respectfully inquired as to what the name of the fuck they were doing, drinking all of the cooking fuel. I was simultaneously aghast at their seemingly suicidal tendencies and in awe of their ability to tolerate such improbable doses of literal poison. An ethanol-based fluid had been provided for them so they could heat their food, a courtesy I had trusted them with. I was under the impression that the heightened processing speed of their brains was an indicator of high intelligence and therefore a functioning self-preservation instinct. As it would turn out, their intelligence was only marginally above baseline. Their efficient brain simply allowed them to be stupid faster than any known species. As the humans assisted in stumbling back to their quarters, they were asked why they had consumed all the cooking fuel. They apparently mistook the clearly labeled canisters for beverages. When told that the labels marked the contents as highly flammable and poisonous, the humans simply stated that they um, couldn't read Galactic Basic and uh, didn't care and refused to elaborate further. Following the incident, I double-checked the bio-overview in order to gain an insight as to why they enjoyed poisoning themselves so much. As it would turn out, humans have a remarkable tolerance to most known toxins. They regularly poison themselves. It's a core component of the culture. And have taken down or synthesized a truly staggering number of substances for the sole purpose of disrupting the brain's and bodily functions. And their brain function was certainly disrupted. Not long after they'd been led back to their quarters to sleep off the super dose of poison they enthusiastically consumed. I had to deploy medical staff to one of their rooms. Apparently, two of their heavily inebriated males began engaging in physical combat over a dispute as to who got to sleep at the top bunk. Combat is not uncommon in most species, but this was different. They didn't do harmless wrestling like most species to establish dominance or something similar. They were violently percussing each other's faces with their upper limbs, spraying body fluids on the floor of each other. Instead of preventing them from beating each other to death, the other humans cheered on the one they liked the most while attempting to record the altercation on crude camera computers that they seemed to have at all times. Their strikes left visible dents in the walls and floor, hinting of a worrying amount of strength. 
One of the males hit a particularly hard under the mandible and collapsed to the ground. The victorious one, luckily, did not continue to beat his adversary to death and instead allowed him to be carried to the medical bay. Before getting to the medical bay, the defeated human woke up, jumped out of the carrying cart that he'd been placed in, and refused medical attention, and attempted to find and consume more cooking fuel. He treated his wounds by rubbing his garments all over them, and returned to his quarters. After the rest period, they made up and were uh, friends again. Upon their return to the mess hall for breakfast, they all seemed to be in a state of great lethargy and irritability. They began dissolving a black powdered mixture into boiling water, which they had to ask for. They were not allowed to have any more cooking fuel. The resulting beverage was full enough of caffeine to kill every non-human passenger on the ship ten times over, and they consumed it anyways. Instead of engaging in recreational activities, as was expected from them, they returned to their quarters and continued resting well past the usual periods for hours. During this time, they consumed copious amounts of water and refused to speak to or cooperate with anyone except medical staff. They attempted to convince staff to give them drugs, claiming to have a condition called a, a hangover despite there not being clear evidence of injuries, and their requests were denied to prevent any more intoxicated human incidents. The next cycle was still short of ideal. A concerned cleaning worker investigated crunts of exertion coming from the lavatory, fearing for the safety of its occupant. A medical worker was dispatched for assistance. Space food can cause gastrointestinal distress in some species. As it would turn out, it was not one human, but two. And there was no intestinal issues. The medical worker thought the humans were fighting and attempted to break them up. Both humans pushed the worker from the lavatory, closed and locked the door, and continued with what they were doing. As it turned out, they weren't fighting. They were mating. This event prompted staff to avoid isolated humans as much as possible, which was probably a mistake. Staff failed to discover the projectile launches a few humans had constructed from literal garbage in time to stop another incident from occurring. The humans used their ping-pong ball guns to engage in a mock fight with each other. There were seven staff casualties. When access to garbage was denied, the humans instead took to bludgeoning each other in sword fights with whatever long, sturdy objects they could find. It would appear that most of their recreational activities involve either abject violence or fierce competition, and they will weaponize anything given to them. Upon their departure, I still found traces of their peculiar behavior. They'd taken every complimentary bar of body-cleaning solvent and had deliberately left behind some currency in their rooms, perhaps as a form of pavement for the appropriated toiletries. This behavior has been noted and is consistent with the behaviors observed by other sapient species that had the misfortune of catering for these devilish creatures. For these reasons, I have indefinitely suspended any and all services to humans.
If they want to travel through civilized space on my ship, they can, as they phrase it, kiss my ass. I don't care if they call me a speciest. It's not happening. I'll guarantee nobody would last a week with these monstrosities. Either let them use the godforsaken fabric of reality-tearing warp drives of death, or sell them some safe ones. I don't care how you do it, just don't let them on ships containing other species unless you want a dozen staff injuries because of a particularly aggressive game of tennis. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of this week's video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the channel, there are numerous ways listed down below. There are also links to the original stories to help the authors out if you so choose to do so. And I'll see you all next week. Until then, I hope you have a fantastic time. Cheers.